Omega Tau. Science and Engineering in your headphones. Hello, welcome to this new episode of Omega Tau. So this one is about the Apache, the AH-64 Apache helicopter. And this episode is almost as special to me as the F-16 episode. Not quite, but um, I'll tell you a little story in a moment. But before we do that, I just want to mention one last time Omega Tau 10. Um, if you do not speak German, you probably don't care much because uh, this wasn't for you, unfortunately. But if you do speak German, you might. So we finally uploaded all the photographs. We have had a couple of people who volunteered to take pictures. And I have uh, received pictures from all of those guys and gals. And uh, I have selected, whatever, 50 of the most beautiful ones. And if you go to omegatowpodcast.net slash OT10, then um, you'll find them. All right. Chapter closed. Was a great party. Was a lot of fun. No more about this. Let's go back to the Apache. So um, let me check. A while ago, actually on May 15, I got this email from our listener, John, who basically said, thank you for Omega Tau, blah, blah, blah. I wish I could have given you a tour of my aircraft, the Apache, in Ansbach. But such is life, because in the meantime, he has moved or he had moved back to the U.S., he continues to say, even so, your show helped inform and inspire my current pursuit in flight test engineering. So obviously, um, Omega Tau had some effect. And then, of course, I had to ask him, okay, so you're no longer here, but I'm sure you know people, right? So can, can you set something up? And he put me, put me in touch with a person he had um, mentored before, um, our guest today, Caleb Marheine. Um, who at that point was still in Europe. In the meantime, he has now also been moved away. So we had to record this episode a little bit in, 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 a, in a rush before he kind of moved. Um, but of course, um, a lot of fun and very interesting. So let me tell this uh, little final story before we get started. So when I was 14 or 15, I'm not 100% sure, 8th grade. In Germany, it's um, traditional to... Do dancing lessons at that age and so I did that too. Um, I also had started flying, gliding in that year um, so um, and at some point there was a military exercise of the US Army um, in southern Germany and a couple of Apaches and Kiowas um, had basically uh, started a little base camp on our airfield, they were actually using our club home basically as, a, as an office and very cool, of course. So everybody uh, was more or less always on the airfield watching the helicopters, you know, uh, sneaking around behind the trees and landing. And we were allowed to, you know, I mean, it was our airfield. And so we were quite close to these things. We're more or less, you know, talking to the guys and, and stuff like that. And anyway, so back to the dancing lessons. Dancing lessons, I think, were on Wednesday evening. But so this whole exercise started on Wednesday, I think. And so I had to, I, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't go to the dancing lessons. It just, I couldn't, it didn't work. I, of course, had to go to the airfield, to the helicopters. And of course, the, the girl at the time with whom I did the dancing lessons wasn't very pleased of course there wasn't a mobile phone right so you couldn't just send a, you know a text say hey 
I, unfortunately, I can't come, so I just didn't show up. Wasn't very good style, but I think I had my priorities right. I, you know, hel helicopters were more important. Unfortunately, uh, it, it didn't necessarily help a lot with the dancing lessons. Well, okay, so um, so much for my own personal story. Let's <laughs> let me shut up and introduce. Well, Caleb is going to introduce himself as usual. Enjoy. I am CW3 Caleb Marhani. In the United States Army, we have a Chief Warrant Officer rank, and it lies in between the enlisted and commissioned officer. Mm -hmm. uh, so the military calls us subject matter experts, or the equivalency, I would say, of an engineer. Mm -hmm. My only job is to fly the helicopter and train people in it. Okay, so you're a flight instructor, if you will. Flight instructor, yes. Okay. Um so just one very quick question about that. Do they have dual controls in all of them, or do you have to do some other special training? No. Um, the philosophy of the Army, going back to, I think, the 50s, was that all helicopters would be able to be piloted from both seats. You learn how to fly the uh, basic helicopter, and then you move into the advanced airframes, mm -hmm. such as this. And as soon as you start flying the Apache or Blackhawk or Chinook, um, it's the same in every seat. So all the training helicopters could be made mission helicopters if need be. Okay. But but here, while not in an operation, you do distinguish between some use for training and some not use. No, okay, so they're nope. the same thing. They are the right, same because thing. Because it said turned into. Um, yep. There's no turning. No, and that's <laughs> that would be at uh, Fort Rucker in Alabama. All it's right. a home of army aviation yeah. and some of their helicopters they they don't have all the mission equipment on so that they would be used as a trainer at right. that point it's more a, a means of saving money i guess exactly don't install advanced avionics exactly all right yeah. all right so um you mentioned in passing we we're talking about the apache today mm -hmm. <laughs> um so why don't we start with a walk around to describe the high level features of the helicopter and sure. uh, we're in front of an of a D model, right? A D model, yeah. that's correct. Um, so AH, attack helicopter, received this designation as the Army started to branch off into the different airframe types for each mission. Uh, on the flight line behind us, you see a utility helicopter, designation 60. Yeah. This is an AH-64. Uh, the, these are becoming the first purpose-built helicopters. Uh, it was designed in the late 70s and produced in the 80s and it is designed as an anti-armor platform yeah the first designation was the alpha model yep and this was designated as a delta model when you look from the front uh towards the airframe it was it's said it's a tandem seat yep. dual engine aerial weapons platform the army doesn't really see it as an actual helicopter okay it's a mobile weapons platform. Mm -hmm. We sit tandem to minimize the forward appearance from the helicopter because if you look, the Blackhawk yeah. is wider. Here. Yep. And the Chinook is even wider. So this was slimmed down and the majority of the helicopter is used to carry the munitions, which on either side, it can carry rockets and missiles and in the center of the helicopter, there's a 30-millimeter cannon. Right. So it's the 
it has become the typical layout of attack helicopters, right? The, the Huey Cobra essentially looked like that, had these little stub wings to put the weapons on. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the Tiger looks like that, so it's kind of typical these days. I think it is, yeah. And it, it kind of goes back, especially with the lineage of aviation, the the heyday was World War Two, and a lot of the fighter planes from them, the pilots would sit in along right. with the fuselage, and so they kind of, uh, Boeing designed the, or uh, McDonnell Douglas designed yeah. the <laughs> Apache, and now Boeing produces it, yeah. and they've kind of taken that throughout their history. Right. I think they make, I think it's a pretty beautiful helicopter. It, it is in the sense, <laughs> here's the thing, I, I agree. But, I I mean, objectively, if you would ask a designer, they would say, well, there's all these bubbles and warts and stuff all around it. So, they might look <laughs> called... I think people get used to some shapes. Yeah, I and would so, say that, yeah. I, I, so, I don't know if it's actually beautiful or whether we all just got used to it. I, I don't know. I, I yeah. like it, but it's hard to... It's a philosoph philosophical question. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> so, the engines, they are mounted kind of on the side in separate pods. They which are. Which is yep. also typical for helicopters, I guess. For American or Western design helicopters, we can go along to the side and, and take a look. Yep. Um, everything that's on a military helicopter is there for a purpose. Mm -hmm. And so the American design is to spread the engines as far away from each other as you can. Ah, redundancy. Redundancy and yep. it increases survivability. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. So these are mm -hmm. spread pretty far apart, and then the drivetrain is off the front. Yeah. Um, a lot of the Russian helicopters kept their engines in line with the drivetrain up on top mm -hmm. of the aircraft, and that gave them more survivability because uh, they were kind of had the helicopter to help protect them. Yeah. And it increased the power that you would get from the engine because it was right in line with the drive right. system mm -hmm. with the rotor. Yeah. So this it's a different design philosophy to produce a helicopter. Right. So, the it's a four-bladed rotor. It is. Um, it's it's slightly X-shaped, right? Uh, from um, the top down, this is still a traditional ninety-degree okay, offset. Right. The tail the rotor tail is, yeah. has the X design. You know why? So there is a research paper. So McDonnell Douglas designed this. They also designed the MD five hundred yep. or the Little Bird. Yep. This is just a bigger rotor system mm -hmm. than that smaller helicopter had. And they maintain the design. It's still incredibly effective going all the way back to the 50s from that helicopter. Mm -hmm. And they just carried it over and put it on the Apache in a much bigger form. Okay. So I would have to ask the MD500 designer why. I think so, yeah. <laughs> I think so. It worked before. Let's not change it. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So should we walk around and look at some of the specifics sure. to the degree you can talk about them? Let's start at the nose. Uh, we can see this uh, this thing that, well, to me at least, obviously looks like a bunch of sensors. It is. Um, the helicopter, um, just like shooting any any rifle, yeah. um, you have to start with optics. Yeah. So on the lower front, you have a target acquisition designation system. And that's a really fancy way to say a site. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so just like you said, the TADS. And then above it is a pilot night vision system or oh, yeah. PINVIS. Mm -hmm. And both of these are 
use FLIR, forward-looking infrared, mm -hmm. to break out their picture to give it to the pilot and co-pilot. Yeah, so you can see in weather like today where everything is foggy or maybe even dark. It was designed specifically for nighttime, yeah. um, but FLIR can see through some fog, which then becomes dangerous at night because you start to fly into the fog and you can see through it with the FLIR mm -hmm. a little bit, yeah. but when you look outside the cockpit, you're flying inside of a cloud. Yeah. Yeah. So that becomes very dangerous. Yeah. And um, are they both um, tied in terms of where they look to your helmet movement? They are. They are. Um, let's take you around to the cockpit. Yeah. We call it a helmet display unit, mm -hmm. HDU. And this attaches to the pilot's head on the right side, and there's a monocle that yep. goes over the right eye. The picture from both cameras and the Pinvis and the TADS can be displayed in the display monocle and those are the cameras are mounted on a turret system. So when the pilot moves his head around, the camera moves yep. and it moves the picture inside of the combiner lens in the HDU. Yeah. So it's almost like a head up display for one eye directly mounted in front of the eye, right? That's, That's how correct. you have to imagine Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, okay. H how fast is this? Is this immediate or can you like turn the head and then the camera comes after like half a second or something? It's almost immediate. Okay. Um, the helicopter is designed uh, with the pilot's helmet is an integrated piece into right. the helicopter. Mm -hmm. And so when I turn my head, the pilot system the pinvis moves faster than the tads but as soon as i'm looking left the camera is looking left with me mm -hmm. it doesn't anticipate motion right but it will give me an instant display and so flying at night i can fly right at the treetops with one eye flying the FLIR system mm -hmm. and it's extremely reliable and has very good acuity mm -hmm. for when you consider that you're using heat to pick up mm -hmm. a picture. Mm -hmm. The reason why I was asking is because some of these newish kind of virtual reality systems, they make, make people motion sick because the, the, the motion of your head and your anticipated change of the picture isn't completely synchronized because the computer takes whatever few tenths of seconds to render the picture. And so I was kind of uh, thinking about how this is in this system. Um, When the Army trains to fly the Apache, we start out flying it during the day. Mm -hmm. And as we become proficient during the daytime, they take a black tinfoil bag <laughs> and they line the back seat so you can't see outside of it at all. Mm -hmm. And that's how you learn to fly the camera system. Mm -hmm. So I guess when I first started flying, I started flying 10 years ago, The that would make you sick because... Okay. The heads-up display symbology is telling you exactly what the helicopter is doing, but your now your eye has to process it instead yeah. of using your inner ear. Exactly, yeah. And that be, that can become very disorienting. Yeah. The camera movement on the TADS, there is a slight lag because it's a targeting pod and it's much more stable at long distances. Uh -huh. So if you have to move your head back and forth rapidly the camera can't keep up with your head motion. So it's moving, but not as fast as your head can move. Yeah. So your head gets to one point before yeah. the camera gets there, and that's what can make some yeah, people yeah, sick. Yeah. I heard uh, in the early days of the Apache 
or in the early days of my becoming aware of the Apache, <laughs> I, I did hear stories that flying with this thing during the night can be quite a challenge because, first of all, you don't have 3D vision because you only have like, like one eye. Mm -hmm. And because of this lag thing, I guess, and because of other factors. So I, I did hear stories that it takes quite some time or getting used to for new pilots to, to get it, used to it. It does. Yeah. Um, the flight school program... Depending on the, the person, because not everybody can perform at the same level yep. as with everything. Yep. Um, it takes between 15, about 15 to 20 hours that you can take off and land the the helicopter. Um, and then after that... That's, that's with uh, Pinvis or just regularly? No, just a Pinvis. Okay, right. Um, okay. And uh, I said it's an aerial weapons platform, but the... A helicopter is a helicopter, yes. so we learn in the in the a very simple one. Yeah. So the first day we can actually fly it. We don't know what we're doing with it yet, but we can <laughs> yeah. we can fly it. Yeah. Um, but at nighttime, in the bag phase, it's it takes about fifteen hours right. of continuous flight to learn it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So since you're talking about that, I actually did fly one hour of helicopter. So I fly gliders for 30 years. Mm -hmm. uh, helicopters are new for me. And I did, for, for the podcast, fly one for an hour earlier this year. It was an, an Echo Ray, like mm -hmm. a French Ace 350. So it's a small, single-engine utility helicopter. Um, and you trained on which one? The 500? The... No, it's a Bell 206. Uh, Jet Ranger, yeah. Jet okay. Ranger. So how, how is flying this one, purely from a flying perspective, not from using it in a mission, but just from a flying perspective, how would you say, what, is, what can you remember as being specific or different? The easiest thing to correlate a helicopter is a car, because we all drive cars. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that the Bell 206 is like driving a Volkswagen Jetta, and the... Apache is like driving a Ferrari. Meaning faster, of course? It's much faster. It is more maneuverable, mm -hmm. and it has a lot more power. So mm -hmm. it can climb a lot faster. Um, a downside, it can fly a lot longer. <laughs> so there's, if you notice, there's no bathroom installed. Well, I have that problem with gliders, too. Yep. Uh, there are <laughs> solutions to that. <laughs> um, it's designed to be fully aerobatic. Uh, the... We're not allowed to is is army pilots, but the the Dutch, for instance, they use it for air shows. They yeah. uh, can do barrel rolls and backflips, um, and it is a very robust mm -hmm. airframe. So it's very rigid. It's and you can when you fly it, the aircraft surrounds you, and mm -hmm. it's it's very very stable and solid. The Bell 206, we used to do this in the instrument training, that if the pilot would move in the back of the helicopter, it would actually turn the helicopter <laughs> yeah. without using the flight controls. Right. You will not have this in the Apache. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right. So let's continue the walk around. Right? Yeah. So we finished with the sensor. I guess these two wards here are radar warning receivers. I guess they look the same. Um, it's, it's part of the survivability equipment. Yeah. Um, one looks for radar, and the other one looks, looks for a form of heat. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And these, these two chin things on the side, they're fuel? EFABs. EFABs. That's so, what they're called? EFAB. Okay. And this is what houses all the avionics oh, yeah. on the helicopter. So from the nose to about midway through on the back of the aircraft, there's banks of computers. Yeah. 
And half of the system is an air conditioner. Mm-hmm. A lot of people say it's for the pilots, but it is actually to keep the computers cool. Yeah. You've seen these flying in Iraq and yeah, Afghanistan, yeah. Yeah. and they were intended to fly in Germany, which gets very cold. Yeah. So the system is designed to control the climate for the computers first. Mm-hmm. But also for the pilots then? Also for the pilots. Yeah, it's, okay. a, it's a nice secondary feature the air conditioner right so it's, is it when you fly in desert climbs how, how hot does it get in there um i have seen 140 degrees oh shit <laughs> oh uh, outside in the cockpit oh. fahrenheit uh what would that be 55 or 60 degrees that's centigrade hot, that's hot and but the air conditioner can bring it down to 40 or 35 degrees centigrade so it makes it it makes it bearable bearable that's the word yeah yep. okay The big thing that everybody likes to talk about is yeah. the gun. So it fires a 30-millimeter high-explosive round. They call it uh, HEDP, high-explosive dual purpose. Mm-hmm. And the dual purpose is that it can be used for tanks, not tanks, armored personnel carriers, soft-skinned vehicles like a, a truck or a car, and then personnel in the open. Mm-hmm. The round can go upwards of... 3,200 meters. When you think about that in U.S., I would say two miles for the distance that the bullet can travel. Uh, but it's most accurate at around a mile, about okay. 1,600 meters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The turret can move left and right, almost a full 90 degrees. Mm-hmm. It can go almost full down depression at 60 degrees. Mm-hmm. And it can also be tied to, well, obviously it's tied to the targeting An acquisition system, system yeah. and that in turn is tied to the pilot's head. So indirectly, it is also kind and, of tied. And directly. I can link the gun straight to my head. There's, ah. We say there's three sight systems on the helicopter. The yeah. TADS is one. Yeah. The fire control radar is one. But also our eyeball yeah. is one. Yeah. So we can, and it's a, a task that we must perform uh, when we shoot our gunnery qualification is to link the tads to our head and mm-hmm. shoot. So okay. it's surprisingly accurate considering that you're hovering this helicopter at maybe 500 to 1,000 feet AGL mm-hmm. and you're using your head to stabilize the gun and shoot. Oh, so it's that sensitive. Like you have to be really careful not to move your head slightly. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it is so rapid in the actioning system, I can select the 30 millimeter gun on the flight controls and the gun will almost slam itself into position mm-hmm. and I can uh, squeeze the trigger immediately and the helicopter will will shoot. So when you're, what you're saying is you're already looking somewhere already and then looking you're somewhere. selecting the gun and then boom, it comes to where you have been looking so far yes. already. Mm. So it, when you do that, is there some symbology on your little HUD monocle thing or is it really just, quote, just visual? Um, nothing comes up that's in, in addition. In the center of our eye, there is a crosshair that's right. always there. Okay. And that represents mm-hmm. where my eye is looking. Mm-hmm. I can see where the opposite crew member is looking as well. Yep. And that's another uh, set of symbology. Yep. Um, but I always had that little crosshair. Right. And so when I'm flying, I can put the crosshair on something and, and I can immediately action a gun right. to that location. Mm-hmm. How does the cockpit infrastructure track the position of the helmet so clearly? Up in the corner, there's these two pieces that have yeah. the glass lenses. Mm-hmm. Those create a, we call it an IR box. 
And so it is tracking. Uh-huh. There's more sensors on our helmet, mm-hmm. and they're tied together. And so the hel- the helicopter knows wherever the helmet is facing. Okay. And it feeds that information immediately into all the computers. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. So this helicopter only has the two Hellfire racks on it. The one yeah. right across has yeah. rocket pods as well. Yeah. The standard configuration, uh, the 30-millimeter cannon, we carry... 300 rounds with mm-hmm. a, an additional fuel tank inside and then there's this can carry upwards of eight hellfires and that one can carry 38 rockets so when you say rockets these are unguided unguided rockets it's almost like a gun except uh, that i mean in the sense that it's not guided you have to target it by aligning it with where you want to shoot right i i equate rockets like a bow and arrow because mm-hmm. the helicopter has a, a sight system and it has a ballistic algorithm but you you are flying the helicopter to shoot the rockets. You are aligning the rocket with the target. Yeah. And it's a lot of fun to shoot them, but it takes time to gain proficiency in doing that. Mm-hmm. So I guess the targeting is done the same way with the cross on your monocle. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why are the two rocket pods uh, angled differently? Probably a maintenance error. Oh, yeah, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Part one, you know, depending on your angle of attack, you have different ways of aligning it, blah, blah, blah. But whatever. (laughs) No, the the Apache, to me, each helicopter has her own personality, and she didn't want to stow her rocket pod when she shut down. Okay, yeah. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Can you notice the differences, by the way, when you fly them? When you say personality, I mean, does it show in the way they fly? It does. It really does. One of the tail numbers out here is 540. I don't see her close hand. I had the most hours in my career in that helicopter. I flew it in Kuwait, Iraq, Germany, and Colorado. Um, I know that I can feel the flight control linkage in it. I can feel the, I know exactly where the engine power levers seem to be for the performance and Mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense. A machine is a machine, but that one specifically to me has a lot of her own personality. Mm-hmm. Sometimes not good. <laughs> you can be ornery. It's how it is with personalities, right? Exactly. They're usually mixed. <laughs> uh, and some of them are incredibly, incredibly maneuverable. I can feel the difference in the flight controls. There's just that instantaneous, mm-hmm. the feedback of the, the rotor, the feedback of the error on the helicopter is slightly different for all of them. Mm. Fly-by-wire? No. Yes? Yes. No. <laughs> I don't know, because, I mean, it's if they feel different, right, then they, in some sense it can't even be possible with fly-by-wire, because in theory, at least, the computer should have the same behavior or feedback algorithm in all of them. Now, the <laughs> Apache was designed in the, in the 70s, yeah. um, and at that time, fly-by-wire was a... Emerging technology. Yeah, F-16, 74 was the first one. Yes. Yeah. And that that's, again, for fixed wing. Yeah. And this, this, the inputs that go into the flight controls are constant to keep the helicopter stable. Yeah. So in the Apache, we have direct linkage that mm-hmm. goes back. Mechanical. Mechanical to the flight controls. And then there is a backup system mm-hmm. that that if the linkage is severed, then we can still fly and control the aircraft if, if it would uh, come to that. Yeah. But it's an emergency system. And that's why when they say that it's fly-by-wire, it has that capability. Mm-hmm. It's an emergency Interesting. system. 
Interesting. Usually it's the other way around, right? You have fly-by-wire primary and then a mechanical backup. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. The pitot tubes are on the stub wings, I guess, where the air is most undisturbed. Correct. Um, and there's there's essentially two systems. Um, one is for this, the pilot's backup system. And this is for the... It's called the flight management computer. It's mm. uh, the system that gives us uh, the most, most reading for the aircraft for it so that it knows the the static air in the, the pitot system. Yeah. And if you look, there's also an <laughs> omnidirectional flight system so that the aircraft can know a crosswind component. It can know the instantaneous change from the rotor downwash, and it, it feeds all that information in because it's a weapons platform. It needs to so be stabilized. In, that assists with that stabilization, yeah. and it gives a ballistic cal calculation to the gun, yeah. to the rockets. Yeah. Uh, the missiles don't need it because they're guided. Yep. But these two systems together give us all the air data for the yep. helicopter. Yeah. So, but talking about missiles, the Hellfires are guided, right? Laser. La laser guided. Okay. Laser. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the military uses uh, somewhat of a standard laser system. Yeah. And yep. it sends out coded energy. Yeah. And the missile can see that energy. Yeah. And there's many 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 variables that go into it but we generally say eight kilometers yeah and the miss missile can see that and fly to the target and goes right to that coded energy yeah, yeah. uh there's also an rf guided so radar frequency mm -hmm. guided missile it receives the targeting information from the fcr and fcr the fire control radar mm -hmm. the what or the, the longbow radar right yeah and that will guide itself to the target Right. then it leaves the aircraft now it's looking for the target so it's a, it's a passive radar system in the missile in the sense that you have to continuously illuminate no no ah, okay it's, it is active like the aim 120 okay, yes cool mm -hmm. yep okay um talking about weapons air to air do you carry sidewinders i why um, i know you can it can the the mount that it, they're supposed to go onto is here mm -hmm. and if you notice there's more equipment mm -hmm. that has been added since the design of the helicopter so the American Air Force, and actually the NATO Air Force, does a very good job that the Apache has never had to be used mm -hmm. for air-to-air. -air. Um, but it has the capability to, or I should say the wiring is still in the airframe okay. to allow sidewinders okay. to be put on. So it's not an operational thing? No. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was always surprised what the exact use case would be because... Um, like trying to fight against like fast jets probably is more or less hopeless unless they're in the ground like in the first uh, Gulf War. <laughs> right. And then then if they're then you, stationary, yeah, yeah. the gun or the rockets sure. would be perfect. Exactly, yeah. Um, I think when, when this was designed, it could be intended to be used maybe for other helicopters yeah, or yeah. other small observation aircraft. Mm. And as more analysis is done, people are always thinking, is it going to be used in that role? And as... As the role of the Apache has changed from primarily anti-armor, which it still is for the Army, but as it, we use it in these other th threat environments, there's no need for to shoot down another yeah, aircraft. Yeah, yeah. Th this is, by the way, also an interesting philosophical discussion that when you, at the time, helicopters or any weapon system is being used the threat environment will have changed quite a bit from the time when it was designed. Like, this was intended for more or less Germany to, to, to bust Russian tanks. Yes. 
right? Yep. And now you're using it in this very different scenario in Iraq or Afghanistan where there isn't that many heavy tanks, like columns of tanks coming up. So it's quite different right. use case. I think the, the Apache is nothing more than a tool. If yeah. you only use a screwdriver to turn a screw, then you can't use as a chisel or a yeah. pry bar. And there's so yeah. many other things you can do. The application with the Apache is the exact same. I think there's a interpretation from a lot of a lot of people that is can only be used to do this one thing, and yeah. we can be used for reconnaissance, uh, search and rescue, yeah. the attack role from far standoff, or we can support convoys. Yeah. There's many yeah. many different uses. Yeah, well, we'll chat about that later a bit. So the 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 wings they have move. Do they have? Are these flaps movable? No, they're not. Right? No, they're not. Okay, okay. It almost looks like it, but yeah. Okay, so then the the exhaust of the engine goes up, right? It does. Um, so there's many different weapon systems that can see the heat of yeah. of an airframe, just like our FLIR. We use it to make a picture. Uh, a lot of threat systems will look for the heat signature of the yeah. engine. Yeah. And so when it's turned up into the rotor system, it dissipates the heat. Right. And it's not nearly as visible. Does this in any way inf interfere with? Um The rotor in terms... Can you feel it when you fly it? No. You don't? Okay. No, I flew both systems. Oh, it was, was not... A, ah. This mm. is a, a change in the past 10 years. Okay. Mm. The first helicopters I flew had a different style exhaust. More or less outwards, right? Correct. All right, yeah. Yep. Mm. Uh, the only issue is that this exhaust sometimes blows across the... Uh, one of the pitot systems. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Mm. The... Now, now I'm at a loss for words. <laughs> the thing you talked about before. Yeah, the, the, thing the, I talked the little about weather station, yeah. that's how it looks. <laughs> so there's a temperature sensor on there, yeah. and uh, it would blow the exhaust under the temperature right. sensor, yeah. and it would it would say that the, the outside temperature is <laughs> 200 degrees, and yeah. that, that would throw the ballistic calculations off. Okay. Mm -hmm. So since then, since our rotor spins counterclockwise looking down, mm -hmm. they change it to the other side, and now it has the same ambient air temperature again, ah, mm -hmm. and there's... No, no issue with it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So moving further towards the tail, there is more uh, warts and things mounted on the airframe. One is, I don't, never know if it's Jeff or flares. They can be used, they're interchangeable. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. um, these are just the launchers then? These are just launchers. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the, or we call them buckets. Yeah. The flare buckets point forward and the chaff bucket points aft. Directly into the tail rotor, which looks to me like a strange design. Like it, <laughs> it helps to dissipate the chaff. Oh, okay. So you have a nice big fan. And it doesn't hurt, like, this damage the rotor. Chaff is the aluminum foil thing. It is. Right? Okay, yeah. Yeah, those are soft. And it, it just disperses it and it helps. It creates a larger cloud for mm -hmm. the helicopter. Mm -hmm. The flares point forward. Um, I was trying to trying to think of a way to explain the flare system on, on a helicopter, and it's kind of like Jurassic Park when the <laughs> Tyrannosaurus is going after the the guy with the flare. Yeah. So he sees the flare, he waves it, and throws it. So an IR-guided missile is looking yeah. for that flare, just like a Tyrannosaurus. It's not yeah. very smart. Right. Sees the flare, <laughs> goes after that, and then the helicopter moves away from the yeah. weapon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. On, on the bottom... Those mm -hmm. are all antennas. So the aircraft has five radios on it. Mm -hmm. And on the back of the helicopter is where we put all the antennas. Mm -hmm. And they don't interfere with anything. We've had one issue with one radio that was installed a long time ago. With It would make our hydraulic 
pressure indication go to zero. Okay. That's no longer installed, and uh, the rest of the radios are quite functional. So you have, I guess, UHF? UHF. That's for air-to-air? On I the... Mean, on the military side. Uh, yes, exactly. And we have VHF, yeah. which we can use that to uh, talk with ATC agencies and yeah. other aircraft. Yeah. And then we have two Fox mic, we call it. And then we can talk to each other and also to ground forces. Mm-hmm. So, th- so the Army ground forces use something other than UHF or VHF, and that's what you use. Right. In the, the FM is in the VHF spectrum. Right. And it's just below your mm-hmm. FM radio in your car, mm-hmm. and it, it uses that same frequency modulation, if you will. Yeah, 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 yeah. okay. And then you have a tailwheel, because we never talked about the gear, right? You have uh, two wheels in the front and one wheel in the back, like a tail dragger. Tail dragger. <laughs> Airplane. Yeah, the, the helicopter, I said it was very robust. Um, you can drop it almost straight down uh, from a designated altitude, But it can take about 30 Gs Whoa. On, on the impact. Mm-hmm. So the main landing gear is very robust. Uh, they tell us that it can sustain about a 2,400 foot per minute straight down descent. Oh, and I have to calculate what this is. A few meters per second in any case. Yes, yeah, so it be about 50 kilometers an hour. Okay. Yeah. Maybe a little bit slower. And uh, divided by 3.6 is meters per second, right? So... Uh No time, whatever. <laughs> never do, never do calculations in public. <laughs> no, public math is not smart. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, but the the tail. When you look at the size of the wheel and how small it is, and then we can do landings with it at a hundred knots. Okay. So it's it's pretty amazing with the design, and it's designed in a fact that when we do that that landing, it's the consideration that the tail rotor is actually falling off. So if you look at the okay. design, look at this especially compared to the Blackhawk, yep. the horizontal stabilator mm-hmm. is, and the vertical stabilator, they're wings. Mm-hmm. So in forward flight at, uh, say, above 100 knots, if the tail rotor falls off, we can still ah, control the aircraft. I get it. Mm-hmm. Maybe not very well, but we can control enough to land. Mm-hmm. And the landing gear is robust yep. enough that when you land, even without the tail rotor, and you have the weight on the wheels... You can use the wheel brakes to stop the aircraft in the event of component failure. Okay, so it's not for, like I once talked to a V-22 pilot tilt rotor, uh, and they like to do rolling takeoffs and landings because they can take more weight. Yes, it's the same same with the... You do that too. We do that as But well. But not 100 knots. <laughs> not 100 knots, no. Uh, right. It's a, one of the considerations that they, they realized when they designed the helicopter. It was robust enough that if the tail rotor does fall off. Yeah, um, interesting. The lift... From the uh, vertical stabilator is still enough that they right. you'll have somewhat of directional control. Cool, interesting. Yeah, you c- you can see that the um, the tailwheel is uh, also robust in terms of left right movement, and I guess that's because when you slow down, you get these sideways forces because you don't have the tail correct. rotor to correct for them mm-hmm. or to to yeah compensate for them. So the the horizontal stabilator seems to be movable. It up is and down. Um, in forward flight, and this actually just happened to me a couple days ago oh. that the part of the flight control computer failed on a on a helicopter, mm-hmm. and it would was uncommandedly scheduling or moving the horizontal stabilator, and this helps with your pitch control in forward yep. flight. 
how do they interact? Like if you, uh, if you let's say you fly it or whatever, 50 knots, 100 knots, you uh, pull the stick back. Of course, what you are telling the helicopter is to essentially slow down, right? So or climb or cl yes, yep. okay, depending on what you do with the pitch. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. So so how does the? I guess that's my question. So if you want to slow down, then what you want to do is you want to essentially raise the nose or push down the tail. So that's a different... So how does this thing know what to do? So this is fully automatic to the pilot. Exactly. Um, the main rotor is on, on a helicopter, controls your... With the cyclic, the center stick mm -hmm. between your knees. Mm -hmm. um, when you push forward, the the aerodynamic effect pitches the aircraft forward to yep. accelerate or decelerate. Mm -hmm. What you're actually doing when you apply aft cyclic, either to climb or decel, mm -hmm. you change your pitch, and you must reduce your collective when that changes the pitch in all the blades. Because otherwise, you would be climbing with the same speed, more or less. Correct. Yeah. Or if you increase, it would help yeah. you with that climb right. rate. Yeah. The stabilator, what we use it for, it's the it stabilizes the aircraft in forward flight, yes. and then we can also manually manipulate the stabilator position so that when we are flying amongst the trees or landing to a terrain area, terrain flight approach we call it, you can actually force the nose down and gain better visibility into your uh -huh. landing area. Mm -hmm. Because if you look, the visibility in the Apache to see beneath you yeah. is terrible. And we should probably say that as a pilot, you sit in the back seat. That maybe doesn't help. And You, you sit in either seat. Uh, you can fly from either seat. But normally the the weapons guy is in the front seat to fight the aircraft. Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. And when we train, we we learn to fly from both yeah. because as the helicopter is redundant, the pilot is also redundant. Yeah. So if they're incapacitated, unable to fly, you have to be able to land to a remote area yeah. from either seat. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Again, this question. How how does the so okay you have this way of manually commanding manually commanding but if you don't do that the flight control system does it all the time so I guess is there a difference so when you want to slow down then does the horizontal stabilizer when you push back sorry when you pull the, back um, to slow down as opposed to pulling back to climb does this thing do something else. No. no. Okay. It, it right. stays in a fixed position. All right. Okay. Um, okay. The times that I've really noticed the use of the stabilator is on an approach as the aircraft decelerates, the aircraft will automatically, we call it scheduling, yeah. and it will change the position. Okay. And it actually brings the stabilator down. Okay. It's almost like a, a flap on an airplane. So when you do an approach where you want to go slower and put the nose down, then it goes down like once stays there it's not like moving all the time to no. control stuff now no. i get it okay mm -hmm. it's one of those things that uh like you were talking about the feel of the helicopter you get used to it yeah, yeah. and then when it doesn't do what it's supposed to do mm -hmm. it's one of those huh? something's wrong and yeah. i don't quite know what it is yeah yeah absolutely i always feel sad if airplanes uh have to be outside all year and are not hangered it clearly shows It like does. The weather shows. Um, the army, and uh, there's different philosophies. Again, the German Bundeswehr Luftwaffe keep all their aircraft in time 
inside all, all the time. Yeah, they have few enough, so it's not a problem to have all the hangars. <clears throat> uh, and the American Air Force, for the majority, especially their fighters, they at least keep them covered. Yeah. Um, we operate out in the field for gunneries and training exercises, and we go to remote locations in Afghanistan and Iraq. And so the maintainers learn how to repair the aircraft outside yeah because that's where we're going to be yeah. operating and the the effects of the environment they wear on the aircraft anyway and so mm-hmm. they they learn to fix those things immediately so the, the small issues that that do come up due to the environment they're continuously fixed mm, okay at least you don't have salt water or sand here right so it's not that bad it's just it's not southern german yeah. fog yeah <laughs> um Let's chat a bit about the cockpit, right? Yeah. Um, so, screens, I guess. So, not many dials. No, uh, an integrated glass cockpit. Yeah. So the older airframes, or the especially trainers, like steam gauges. Mm-hmm. Um, the Alpha model was that way, and yeah. the Delta model, they integrated into multi-purpose or multi-function displays, yeah. MPDs, and. We can select in between the engine page and a navigation page yep. and a weapons page, and we can fully integrate it to all the computers, so we can select what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. One of the big things that a lot of pilots are always worried about is that if they don't have the light on the dash, they don't know what's wrong because that light's not flashing right away, or they can't see the gauge going down. Mm-hmm. So. If the parameters on the helicopter are outside of what's considered normal operation, the aircraft will immediately put that page up to the pilot. Yeah. yeah. So the aircraft is almost constantly monitoring Itself. that for mm. the pilot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so are the so you said that you can operate, well, you can fly from both seats. You can. That means that uh, obviously the 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 flight information, like whatever you know, horizon or primary flight display kind of thing um, is available on both it is um, yep. for the weapon systems also both seats are almost almost completely redundant okay and the biggest one is where the defog and the windshield wiper is honestly <laughs> okay, okay. Um, in the back seat I can shoot the rockets I can shoot a yep. missile and the gun And primarily, the back seat fires the rockets because you are controlling the aircraft to shoot right. it. And then mm-hmm. the front seat can primarily control the gun and the missiles. And it's just, it's just how we have cracked the nut mm-hmm. for controlling the aircraft because right. the front seat has the primary control of the TADs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, either pilot that you can fly with either system on the front. Mm-hmm. So you can switch the sensor. If one breaks, you can take the other one to, to fly. Uh, flight controls are redundant. Yeah. Um, and you can monitor the horizon in the front seat. And you can see the weapon symbology in the back seat. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it makes it so if uh, you're you're monitoring each other for the crew coordination aspect mm-hmm. of flying. Yep. You need to climb. You should descend or yep. move your sight to look here. Yeah. And it really helps. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't remember. I think it was the A model, but I'm not 100% sure that there was this... This thing where you had to put your eyes on top of to look into in order to see some. Was this the A? That was and the. And that was only in the front seat. That that's the the control for the tads. Right. And it went from the ORT optical relay tube to what we call a TDAC. 
And the TDAC, the handles have stayed the same, but oh, we almost okay. added a, a third picture. So instead yeah. of looking down a essentially a periscope like a right, submarine, right, 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 we right. have this third screen right. that allows us to see the picture from the right. TADs. And so that's why, because you didn't have that on the rear seat. Correct. So now you can get, you can, quote, look through the TADs on the rear seat because in the front seat, because you don't need this special mechanical thing. Correct. And with the with the FLIR, and there's video processors and all sorts of technology that makes magic happen for us, <laughs> but we can select the TADs video to be put onto an MF or the mm -hmm. MPD in, yeah. in either seat. Right. So... Uh, My technique, I actually prefer to put a picture, the Tad's picture, on an MPD because it's bigger. Yeah. And it's the same picture I get in both seats. Right, right, right. So right, right, now right. I know exactly the perspective of what the yeah. other pilot sees. Yeah. And I can, instead of using it just in my combiner lens in my eye, yeah. to me that's a, a better technique. Yeah. Some people don't do that. Mm-hmm. You just called the guy in the front the other pilot. Um, is your, you said that you're redundant in the sense that both can do both. So some of the training must be the same. So It is. Uh, the front seat is a co-pilot gunner or the CPG, mm -hmm. and the back seat is designated the pilot. Um, and it's, it's just a, it's a term. Some of the other branches, and I think it's kind of left over from the Cobra days where they had a dedicated gunner. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't qualified as a pilot. Right. But now, for myself, I can fly from e either seat. I can command the aircraft from either seat. I can command the mission from either seat. But but there is still a difference in, I don't know, training, role, job description? And it, and there is like a pilot and a gunner, even though both can fly. Correct. Okay. And the front seat, he is, he is a co-pilot gunner. Right, okay. Yeah. So... So take off landing, you'll do that if nothing goes fundamentally wrong. Correct. Okay. Mm. So there's no ejection seat, right? No. The What's the plan? <laughs> <laughs> the joke is that we take it right to the scene of the crash. But the uh, the Russians actually worked on ejection seats. And if you look the with the main rotor spinning right above the pilot yeah. stations, if you eject, it would be very dangerous. Yeah. But if you look, each pilot station has a jettison handle mm -hmm. front and back yep and that is it jettisons the canopy and so that way if there's i i brief this to the my co-pilot when i fly if we have a hard landing and we can't get out of the aircraft we can't open the door we'll jettison mm -hmm. the canopy yep. and then we can still get out yeah but in terms of um I don't know, you get shot at, uh, your main rotor takes a fatal hit, doesn't really work anymore, you can't just, you know, bail out and you're saved. No. Nope. So it's just, there's no plan B. I mean, you it's the 30 Gs, the landing gear can take. That's yeah. the plan B. Um, the, <laughs> the helicopter, when all helicopters can do this. Um, when you no longer have engine power going to the, yeah. to the main rotor, you can auto-rotate. Yeah. And you're basically the... 2,400 feet per minute at a 90 knot forward attitude on this aircraft uh, provides enough upflow of air through the rotor system yeah. to still provide lift, yeah. and it decelerates the aircraft. As you come down, and that's that's at, you're falling at essentially a 2,400 foot per minute. Yeah. You decelerate the aircraft, you flare, yeah. and that minimizes that extra 2,400 yeah. foot trade airspeed for altitude, yeah. 
and hopefully land. Yeah, well, we've, we've done it when I did the helicopter flying, so it, it does work. It, it does, yeah. <laughs> but that's yeah. Uh, that's under perfect conditions yeah. that you're going to an airfield or an improved True. surface. Yes. So, I mean, I, I totally understand, of course, that uh, having an ejection seat with the rotor above you, I don't know what you'd have to do to explode away the... Rotor system. Yep. Um, and I think that's what the Russians did in this. I think it was the, the Hokum, right? The Kamo 50? Yep. Yeah. Um, but I still, I'm still surprised. Like, Let's say the Air Force would be operating this thing. Um, I wonder if the, quote, pilots union. <laughs> no, I mean, the army has may maybe it's more this like tank metaphor. You also can't escape from a tank if it becomes, you know, bad. So I, I wonder how this, how this trade-off works, that, that there is no crew escape system um, I think in the in the army it used to be regulatory that you wore a parachute. Mm. Um, you don't, do you? No, okay. no parachute. Yeah. And the reliability of the aircraft, the modern helicopters mm. and modern, but the ones that we currently fly, <laughs> are that's not even really a consideration anymore. And it's because the redundancy of all the components, the location of the engine. The robustness of the rotor system. And you're saying that not just from a, uh, let's say, kind of civilian context with stuff failing, but you're saying that also with a military operational context. Yes. The, 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 the likelihood that it's going to be damaged from a rocket or whatever is so bad that you can't land in, or put it down in, in a survivable way is, is very remote. Very remote, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And. When we first walk up, when you first walk up and see the size of the Apache and you first start flying it, um, the first days we we focus on the emergency procedures that if there is a mechanical failure, this right. is what you do. Yeah. And we have that mentality with our helicopters, and it's never to get out of it. It's only okay. to get out of it once it's safely on the ground. Interesting. Again, the question is, what is what is the reason? What's the consequence? Right? You, I mean, you can't get out of it, so you have to do it this way. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I think that's a better way to look at it. Um, so, in terms of robustness, you, you talked about the very sturdy uh, landing gear. In terms of armoring, uh, being shot at, how, is the is the cockpit specially protected? I mean, the windscreens don't look especially. No, the, the side ones are not. Okay. Um, but in between the crew station, there is a ballistic piece of glass. And yeah. if you look at how large this piece is, it's oh, yeah. about three centimeters mm. thick. Mm. That is ballistic. Right. And then the seat itself oh, yeah. mm -hmm. is ballistic. So some people say that that piece of glass is actually prevent the pilot in the back seat from shooting the pilot in the front seat when they get mad at each other. But... <laughs> um, the design of the helicopter, there's there's a couple armor panels, like this Yeah. This is a mm -hmm. Kevlar piece. Mm -hmm. The seats are Kevlar. Um, the fuel tank. Oh, yeah. Oddly. So right. it's a self-sealing system that can take a very large caliber impact to the seat or to the fuel cell. The fuel will absorb the energy of the bullet, mm -hmm. and then it will self-seal mm -hmm. so it doesn't leak the fuel out. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the... That's common in aviation now to have self-sealing fuel systems, yep. but these ones are designed to be punctured if they're shot and then to seal up. So it's just mm -hmm. a little bit larger, the same system as in civilian flight. Right. Um, in the front, I don't think it was intended to be this way, but the TADS itself, the airframe interface assembly, mm -hmm. is a big chunk of steel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, again, when you look at the perspective looking back, the front seat has this added protection. Right. Yeah. Uh, 
for the consideration. The sides, there's just a piece of plastic, and it keeps the wind off of you. That's mm. it. Mm. Mm. One thing we didn't talk about is the wire cutters, right? You have them at every, if you yes. will, extremity. <laughs> Everywhere. So yeah. the Kiowa used to have these really big ones, big yeah. ones all over yeah. the place. Yeah. And I remember when I first started flying by the trees with the, the Bell 206 and the Kiowa are the same airplane. Yeah, yeah. I remember thinking, this thing has it all over the place. And when I first started flying the Apache, I didn't realize there's the exact same on the Apache. On the front, there's a large piece of steel that covers the tads. Oh, ah, yeah. That will deflect. It's more it. like a deflector, right? Deflector. Yeah. yeah. And it goes up to a cutter. So yeah. every single surface on the helicopter, yeah. it is either going to deflect a wire. Yeah. Or it's going to catch it and attempt to cut it. Yep. And high tension power lines, there's, is this going to destroy the helicopter? Those, those cables are yeah, yeah. the size of your arm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. The, uh, for the smaller ones, the biggest one was back in the day for the tow missile guidance wires. Because you shoot oh, that, that and they, yeah. they'd be strung across. So yeah. the intent was that these, if you didn't see them and you didn't see the, because if you look out, Germany does a really good job of this. There's no high-tension wires all over the place. You can yeah. see that one structure over there, but you can see the structure. Yeah. You see in the U.S. telephone poles with the wires going between or the power line yeah. poles. Uh, in a combat zone, if you shoot wire-guided missiles, yeah. you don't have that. Yeah. So right. the wire deflection system around the gun on the landing gear, yeah. the tail wheel, that little fin that wasn't yeah, for aerodynamic, yeah. that was to deflect yeah. wires away, yeah. Yeah. it's the whole system. So this clearly hints at the main purpose of this thing, which is not to, uh, you know, beat uh, altitude records, but to fly low. To fly very we'll low. we'll talk about the missions later a bit. Yep. So one last question about the like structure while we're walking around it. It has this uh, place to mount something on top of the rotor, right? That's it where is. the radar would go. It is. Um I used to I used to work on the avionics and weapons and sight systems on before I became a pilot. Okay. And ah, that's why you call uh, talked about being an engineer before because as a pilot you don't necessarily have a lot of technical background, do you? You don't have to. No, uh, a pilot that's a warrant officer. Uh, some of the guys that I've worked with um, were rangers. They were infantry mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. A good friend of mine. He went to school at Embry-Riddle, and yep. he went immediately into becoming a warrant officer. And like myself, I I was enlisted and worked on these before. Okay. Mm -hmm. But on the top, and if yep. you look down the flight line, there's different variants that have different systems oh, mounted right. on the top. Mm -hmm. And that's a derotational unit that the mm -hmm. fire control radar system mounts to. Yeah. And it doesn't spin. It doesn't right. spin with yeah, a rotor. It's not an AWACS. <laughs> right. Um, it, it can rotate and, and go around in a circle, but it's not at the same speed yeah, yeah, that yeah, the rotor goes. Yeah, yeah. Which, when I first started working on it, when I saw it, I was like, how does it work if it spins with the rotor? Yeah. But no, it's it's <laughs> it's a derotation unit that keeps it stationary yeah. and the rotor spins around it. Yeah. And so the, the radar, um, you, you don't have one. Not on these aircraft. Not on here. these aircraft. No. The, the 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 point of so the the radar is called the longbow radar, and the Apache D model is called the longbow Apache or Apache longbow. I think is the official longbow Apache. Longbow Apache. Um, so so usually it is installed, or at least the idea was that it would be installed. Correct. Um, but the fact that you don't have it installed means it's more or less an, an optional in terms of missions, yep. an optional component. So what would it give you in addition? We can see our radar image of the battlefield. 
it can be set up to do a uh, terrain profile flight as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. But the it can scan the air. Um, you can have an air surveillance mode. It's like an air surveillance radar. Yep. Um, but the primary design of it was that from a hovered position, a stationary position, it can scan the battlefield mm-hmm. and find tanks. And just yep. like any armor or any radar, it gets the best return off of a, a steel piece, yeah. Yeah. which oddly, that's what tanks are made out of. <laughs> so, so strange coincidence. And it, <laughs> we would then see those tanks. And especially if a tank is sitting in a wood line, it's hard to see with your eye. Right. You can camouflage it. Yeah. But there's few things to defeat radar because of the metal object returning the radar yep. signature. Also, because it's like mounted at the top of the helicopter, you can keep the helo more or less behind trees and only have the little radar yep. look over it. I know the Kiowas did that with their side systems, right? But you have on the nose, they have on top of the, the D model at least, on top of the heli- uh, rotor. Correct. Yep. And so that was also part of the idea. Correct. And you could take all the helicopters and mask them along a wood line or a hilltop. Yep. One one aircraft with an FCR would expose the FCR, yep. scan the battlefield, yep. and a Kiowa, way back when, would <laughs> could observe the fires with the sight system being above mm-hmm. and keep the helicopter masked. Yeah, right. So, in an ideal situation, at least one of a group of collaborating helicopters, we'll talk about the terms, you know, squadrons and stuff <laughs> later, um, Like one of them would have the radar and would provide like a service to the others in the sense that it would do the, yep. the okay. It would, it would communicate that information to the other ones. Yeah. So then you're, you can do a coordinated attack. Yeah. Okay. You might not be able to say this publicly, but when you say communicate with the others, is that like talking or is there a data bus? Um, data bus, it sends it, it's a communication feature that the aircraft has. Okay. That it can, it can send data to and from. So is it, The same system that AWACS uses to communicate with the Air Force, or is this different? Um, the next generation Apache integrates into the Air Force system. Oh, yeah. This one stays with itself on its own dedicated communication okay. system. Okay, all right. Mm-hmm. The next generation would be the E-model, right? The ECHO model, correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. I always have several last questions, just yeah. for your information. <laughs> um Autopilot? Does it have that? It does not. Okay. It has hold modes. Okay. Altitude so, and a heading hold. Okay. So it, it, what you're saying is you can't program a sequence of track points, nope. but you can, let's say, do something to get your fingers off the sticks, right? Correct. You can make it go straight or, yeah. And it's, it's amazing. And when the Mike model Blackhawk came out, uh, it had all these functions. And to the Apache pilots, it was, what is this? new technology and all the Blackhawk pilots will tell us we finally got an autopilot because mm-hmm. we never understood it. With these hold modes, once you climb up, you can be at maybe 2,000 feet MSL, you can set your hold mode and it will hold your airspeed, altitude, and heading. Yep. And we'll also do that at a hover. So it can do automatic hover. It can do an automatic hover. Cool. Mm. So, and again, yeah. it's it's holding your position on the yeah. over the ground. Yeah. And it's one of those things that When you're in your battle position and you're you're now focusing on the enemy or the threat environment, now you don't have to worry about the helicopter. Yeah, and I, yeah. I, t- I say Boeing is flying it for me. So <laughs> yeah. Boeing is flying the Apache yeah. when I'm trying to fight it. And for those of my listeners who have not listened to the uh, to my helicopter flying episode, which also was in German, so many of my listeners now won't have, um, 
being stationary in a hover isn't like there is nothing to do for the pilot, right? This is a very, if you will, demanding state. You have to, you're the control system. You have to stabilize everything. So making that automatic is a big deal. It, it's, it is. It's not like a car that cannot drive by itself. Right. right. I mean, you're, stationary you're, car is nothing. Yeah, when you park a car, you, <laughs> yeah. in, it, you turn it the, off. The ground is holding you yeah. up. Yeah. When you're hovering a helicopter, um, and the, the Bell 206, it was a constant input because yeah, you're still exactly. flying. Yeah. And even if you're at a stationary hover, you're still flying through the air because the breeze is actually moving you. That too, yeah. We'll try to be moving you. Yeah. So the mm-hmm. flight control computer, the FMC on this, can keep you stable in those positions. Mm-hmm. Enough and with enough confidence, you can take your hands out the flight controls and start pushing button, buttons. Yeah. And I call it fighting the helicopter, getting yeah, ready to fight. Exactly, because that's also this thing, right? I mean, the flying is only the 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 if you will the necessary precondition for what you actually want to do. Correct. Uh, which is different from civilian helicopters, but there is the flying is the purpose. Correct. Right? So and so you have to be able to, uh, yeah, I don't know, you know, pick up a map, for example, and look at it. I don't know, probably digital these days it is but but the yeah. same concept yeah gps gps yeah okay uh dual uh i and u with a single gps antenna right. but yeah. it, it can pick up all the satellites yeah, that yeah. it needs yeah. and it can also without the gps information it can the i and u can tell it where it is with inertial inertial systems yeah. yeah yeah all right so how about i'm going to press the pause button here okay uh, and we're going to talk about stuff that doesn't need the physical helicopter in a moment. Okay, sure. So, recording again. We're back in a conference room, basically. Yep. Um, I asked you before whether you guys will be flying today. Uh, it's very foggy here, and you said uh, it is. probably not, because it's kind of at the lower limit of what you would want voluntarily, like without operational reason, fly. So... From that, I, I take that the Apache is not IFR. It's not. Um, it's fully capable. Uh, it has all the systems installed that it, it can fly in the in the clouds. Yep. Meaning that you you can do it from point A to point B. It doesn't have the. It doesn't have a VOR. It doesn't have an ILS receiver. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's only VFR rated. Um, my dad recently got his pilot's license, and when he learned oh. the difference, he was very surprised, and yeah. he asked why. And I said, if you can't see the target when you get there, why, what's, the point? What's, what's the point? And yeah. um, I think the that has somewhat changed, because now if you have bad weather en route, the Echo model is fully IFR. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. So they can yes. they could fly in the clouds right. and then hopefully come out to see the target where they're going to shoot. Yeah, I, I think um, I might be wrong on this, but... Um, I think there is now a different IFR rating for civilian pilots depending on whether uh, you can take off and land in IFR conditions or whether you can, if you will, just go through a bit of bad weather on en route. And it's it's maybe similar. You can't do your mission in IFR conditions, but it's good if at least on the way you go there, you can go through weather that isn't visual. I think the, the the plan too the is if you talk to the guys that fl- that have flown in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, we will absolutely push weather because somebody's in danger on the ground. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the that's when you know what rules you you can safely break and yeah. you, what rules you're going to bend uh, to to make sure that people aren't getting hurt. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, the for normal flying. 
Uh, a day like today, the ceiling was about 700 feet, and the visibility is about 3,200 meters. Yep. And it's, it is below what's considered VFR conditions yeah, yeah. for, yes. especially here. Although, by the way, I think the, the minimums for helicopters in uncontrolled airspace are under 800 meters, right? They are. So, <laughs> in um, theory... <laughs> but the airspace here, as long as the airspace is open, yeah, right. we need right. 1,505 yeah. here. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's when you... What rules are you willing to break at what time and what's safe to do? Yeah. So, who, who makes the decision? You said that in Iraq you would go... Um, even when the weather was was much worse than it is here now, um, do you decide as a pilot what you what you can accept? Does your boss Ooh. give you the order? I mean, military everybody always says you get an order, you do it. How does um, that work? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, a, in a situation, if you're if you're my boss, you would come to me and say, "Caleb, can we do this?" Yeah. And I would say, "Yes or no." based off my comfort level. If yeah. I say yes and he's comfortable with the risk, he would then usually say, go do it. And I'm becoming one of the mid to senior experienced guys. I'm, yeah. I'm definitely not one of the 5,000-hour Apache pilots, yeah. but um, I'm not one of the young guys anymore. At the same time, there are missions that the very senior officers would say, you are going to go do this because mm -hmm. if you don't, the consequences are worse than the risk to yeah. just you. Yeah. And that's, that is the side of the military. That's, yeah. that's what we're here for. Yeah. Yeah. True. I mean, if you could make a decision, I'm not going to fly today. I might get shot down. That's yep. obviously uh, pointless for a military organization. So one thing we didn't cover before um, about the helicopter itself, um, just, you know, people have an overview. Rough numbers. How fast can it go? How far can it go? What's endurance? The fastest that I've gotten the Apache up to is when I had it in the back of a C-17. I think we went <laughs> 400 knots. <laughs> um, we normally cruise around at about 120 knots true, mm. which is, I wow. think, 105 indicated. Yeah. Um, in a dive, I've gotten it up to about 190 Mm -hmm. um, and it can fly for three hours. I've mm -hmm. had it up to 14,500 feet for altitude. Um, but the airframe, it's kind of amazing for the V&E. The V&E is limited on, on atmospheric conditions mm -hmm. on basically when you're going to get an compressibility of the blade. It's an yeah. aerodynamic effect. Yeah. Um, when I flew the Bell 206, I referred to it as a Volkswagen, it's... Uh, <laughs> It was always limited by the performance of the airframe. That the airframe mm -hmm. kind of structure, structure, yeah. And on our on the Apache, it varies from day to day mm -hmm. due to atmospheric conditions. Yeah. It's basically when the rotor tips become supersonic. Correct. Yeah. But for day to day stuff, if we're going to go cruise flat and level, one twenty is what we normally fly for formations. Yeah. Because you can catch up if you get too far behind in the other aircraft. Um, the Echo model goes much faster. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the alpha, the alpha model went a little bit faster than the Delta as well. Uh, but 120s are general general cruise. Mm. You mentioned that you took it up to 14,000. Was that just for for the fun? Or was there so, an operation? Because usually you mostly do low-level flying, right? Well, we were crossing a mountain range that was okay. at 12,500. Mm. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. So um, it was low-level over that mountain. It was still low-level <laughs> over the mountain. Good. <laughs> um, 
in Afghanistan, some of the mountain ranges there are up at 12,000 yeah. feet. And then they're still trying to get a 1,000 foot to 2,000 foot separation yeah. so that they can see and operate. And I'm not sure if they're still in those areas anymore. But a lot of our pilots would, would talk about flying them for three to six hours with ox- supplemental oxygen masks mm-hmm. uh, above 14,000 feet. Okay. How can you do six hours if the endurance is three? Um, they would go back and refuel. Uh, okay. A question that we get asked a lot is, can the Apache do midair yes. or in-air refuel? Yes. And it cannot. It cannot. Okay. So then uh, the, 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 the reason why air refueling, and I, by the way, listeners, I just recently listened to a great audio book called Tanker Pilot about um, flying the KC-135. And one thing that became extremely clear, it, it was kind of clear to me before, but it became even clearer through this book, is how important refueling is for the kinds of operations we've all seen in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine it's not that different with helicopters, right? I mean, your your base isn't necessarily where the, the, the fight is, right? So, so how do you do this? Do you have, like, I don't know, tankers, like tanking helicopters landing somewhere, building, ref- making refueling sites? And it, uh, again, yes, it's any means that we can. Um, we have dedicated fuel trucks that are extremely robust that can go cross country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the Apache the helicopters burn, aviation burns a lot of fuel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. we have very robust trucks that can carry uh, an enormous amount of fuel and be able to set up in a moment's notice with fuel lines. Um, and my dad's a pilot. He's also a volunteer firefighter. He said it was very similar to how the fire department will right. set up a remote spot in the middle of nowhere to put out a barn fire or a forest fire. Yeah. So we transport the fuel to uh, a fuel truck and or there's a system that can be put in a helicopter that can be dropped off uh, or the Air Force has the ability to land an aircraft with a fuel tank in the back c-130 and then we can pull up next to that and receive fuel yeah and by the way the, the question about air refuelability isn't totally uh stupid because there are actually helicopters that oh, can abs- air refuel absolutely and i think the the black hawk can do it and the ch-53 right i think these are the two that i know of so um when you see a helicopter that has a long probe on the yeah, end it's not a big pedo it's not a big pedo too <laughs> it is for air refuel yeah. uh the MH60, MH60 is, yeah. uh, and then the HH60 that the Air Force flies, the yeah. uh, I think it doesn't have Hawk. Yes. The Seahawk, and they're yes. all UH60 designations, yeah, yeah, yeah. just yeah. different forces. Yeah. Um, the Chinook and the 53, yeah, yes, the CH53. Exactly. I think there's there's always been a mentality that because the Apache is primarily kind of like a, a fighter fighter of helicopters, yeah. that it can do the mid-air refuel. And the capability that we're going to move forward and stage with the helicopters out in the woods, it was the mentality that, well, if the helicopters are there full of all these, all these guns and missiles, yeah, yeah. they can defend them, their own area. Yeah. So we can def- kind of defend that area yeah. and set up our fuel point yeah. and then launch the attack from there, yeah. come back, get fuel, and then everybody yeah. goes back to our front lines or where, where everybody else is operating. And again, it's not, it's not different from, from, um, from Air Force tankers. They also, like, as the, um, you know, the, the, the airspace that is where, where the Air Force has air superiority moves into, let's say, Iraq or Afghanistan, the, the tankers can follow. 
into this other country. And so it's, it's not that different except that you do it in the ground. Correct. So, yeah. so you said before that there, you can fly for three hours. How long are missions in the worst case? Like fly, land, tank, fly, land, tank. Are there, like in civilian uh, aviation, there are limits uh, to how long pilots can fly before they have to take a break. Um, what's your longest continuous fly, tank, fly, tank, fly, tank? Thing. I think it was ten and a half hours. Oh, okay. And that was one of the ones where somebody woke me up and said, you have to go. And I said, okay. <laughs> so I, I went out to the helicopter and I, um, yeah, I think it was ten and a half hours. The next day it was nine and the day after that oh. it was eight. Yeah. The continuous operations for three days straight. Yeah. So when you land for refueling, I guess you can do that with the engine running if mm -hmm. it's really urgent. Mm -hmm. But in those cases, could you at least exit the helicopter, walk a few steps, pee on the tree or whatever the kind of, if there were trees? Yeah. Uh, probably uh, not. <laughs> I don't uh, know. Get a little bit of food. Yeah, you can do that. Okay. And and you basically, you're going as quick as you can. Yeah. So as fast as you can put gas in the aircraft and, and get back out. Um, like 10 that's minutes. That's what you do. And, and that's the, yeah. the same consideration is um, then you try to get more more assets on station you have more helicopters right. that can alleviate that workload yeah then you can take a break um we do have a, a restriction on on how much we can fly and that's again the commander we would ask can i'm okay can i get an extension to fly yeah. more and then it gets to a certain point that uh i've some of my close friends have been told you will stay out there until these people are back. Mm -hmm. And once they're back, that's when you come back. And that's yeah. just the way it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's chat a bit about low-level flying. The fact that you have these cable deflectors, at least for thin cables, yep. uh, means that cables is one of the risks. Yep. Uh, what else would you uh, consider a challenge when flying low-level? And also how low-level is low-level for helicopters? How, how low do you go? What is it called when you, when you dance underneath the pole? How low can you go? It's I th there is different terms. There is uh, below trees. There is nap of the earth. Then there is elk. Uh, elk, uh, elk, whatever. What do you call this thing on <laughs> yeah, the elk? The antlers. Yeah, antler. Exactly. And then there is also ant knee altitude. Like, you know, the, the little ants knee altitude. So that's the terms I know. Um, <laughs> I think I think the, the ant knee would be the, the <laughs> most appropriate. Uh, we trained to, to try and fly below 25 feet above the trees okay that the the bottom of the helicopter is within 25 tree 25 feet of the trees mm -hmm. um and then our airspeeds vary based off of that but we try to stay so low that we are below the hilltop so you can't see us from hilltop to hilltop and then um there's a book the art of the helicopter and then there's a uh the combatant role of fighter jets yeah and you were talking about the air-to-air -air threat the lower that the helicopter is mm -hmm. the better performance it has because the the density there is, is it's thicker yeah um and then also you're somewhat in ground effect yeah right. so um if you can go across an open area and ground effect there's benefits to that um and it also increases the ground clutter from right. your radar return, yes. and you can't see the You're helicopter as out easily. Of the spot. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, the closer you are to the ground, the easier it is to shoot with a rifle. 
mm-hmm. like a, yeah. a AK-47 or what have you. So you want to be hired to stay away from that threat. So there's always a give and take. Right. One day you have the bat, the next day the other guy has the bat with a nail in it, so you come back with whatever. So you're always trying to play that cat and mouse game yeah. with tactics. I wonder if, um, let's say, instead of hovering very low in a, I don't know, tree clearing because you need to wait for whatever reason, would you also just simply land? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And that's, that's you, basically you're holding. Yeah. So instruments you hold up in the sky by flying in a circle on the on the ground we would do we would hold for an operation and yeah. just wait yeah okay um in terms of flying low i imagine if it's a windy day you have lots of turbulence also um let's say from tree or ridges or stuff um do, do you notice that seriously in a heavy uh machine like the apache or is that kind of below the there's different um different classifications of turbulence uh, and so discussions for we have especially up in the mountains since we we fly in colorado yeah when um, you have waves then it's really bad a rotor wave uh, rotor right. turbulence it's that heavy. comes off of the mountaintop yeah, yeah. um in the trees especially around germany i never noticed it at the treetop okay um the air was always very controlled but you can see it in front of you you can see the trees moving mm-hmm. and you can see the water um generally if you have turbulence up at a thousand feet let's say If you come down a little bit lower and you get right above the trees, it's you just have the crosswind or the headwind or yeah, you have the yeah. one that's at the, the treetops. It doesn't have enough time to really get the convective activity to yeah. to blow the helicopter around. Okay. Hmm. So obviously you can't auto-rotate from 50 feet or 100 feet because you need more altitude to build up the speed that you know drives the rotor from its own right. airflow. Yep. So I guess that's maybe a reason for these 30 g's because if you have an engine problem there you just fall down if essentially. correct yep yeah. and the rotor system uh it's it has weight so it has inertia, inertia in, yeah. in the in the aircraft and the mentality is is we hope <laughs> is that when you lose engine power you have enough energy left in the rotor mm-hmm. that if you're at a stationary hover you increase the collective And cushion yourself on the way down. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, if we're a, in that avoid region, we call it. Yeah, yeah. Um, we can pitch the helicopter down mm-hmm. in a single engine failure, and then gain enough airspeed to flare and land with the limited engine power from the other engine. Yeah. Um, the Echo model doesn't have this issue. It can hover single engine. Wow. No problem. <laughs> okay. The Delta model. Uh, we train for that. Mm-hmm. And the higher the DA, the larger that avoid region is. Density altitude. Density yeah. altitude. Yeah. So in mm-hmm. here, for instance, uh, our field elevation is 1,078 feet in the, for the majority of Germany. It's, it's a low, low train. Yeah, 300 meters-ish. 300 meters. Um, here, we would go up to maybe 100 meters for the... Mm-hmm. to train the maneuver and still have a, a massive buffer to yep. manipulate a power lever. In Colorado, we would go up to 200 meters. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we would lose a significant amount of altitude because of the change. Because it's higher there. It's much the higher. The A is higher. Yeah. 2,000, 2,000 meters for field elevation for some of the airfields. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, so you're Army, right? Correct. So Army is usually ground. 
Correct. I mean, historically. Um, how does this history play into the way you work? I mean, um, you already said before that it's not a helicopter, it's a, it's a, it's a weapons platform. Weapons platform, yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess the tank is also a weapons platform in that sense. Um, I mean, how do you, in an operational environment, are you part of the ground troops how does this mentality and collaboration work on a high level and we refer to it as the ground force maneuver the a ground force commander operationally owns this section of real estate and this goes all the way back to uh you might want to say alexander uh the integration of forces to basically uh combined arms maneuver warfare mm -hmm. um the army maintains the helicopters at the maneuver level to basically pick and choose what the ground force commander wants to achieve easily mm -hmm. for that maneuver campaign. I can, and especially with a helicopter, I can look out the window and I can see the riflemen moving. Yep. And there's been situations where I've said, I can see you, Put your hand on your shoulder, and I'll see the squad leader put his hand on his shoulder and say, point to where the gunfire is. Mm -hmm. And he will point with his rifle or a point with his hand. And we have that level of integration. Okay. And also, with us being integrated with, with the Army, after the mission, this happened multiple times where I've gotten out of the helicopter, I've gone to the dining facility, and sat down with the soldiers I was just working with, whether it is the their battalion commander, brigade commander, all the way down to the private and say what worked, what didn't work, what yep. could we do better. Yeah, yeah. So so you consider yourself an integral part of the ground forces. Of the ground forces, and, yes. And, and okay, and just a flying tank. Flying tank. <laughs> right. Um and, and how does how does a typical I mean we'll we can talk about specific missions in, in a in a few moments, but do you typically I mean, the Air Force, so the reason why I'm always comparing to the Air Force is because they have a lot of experience as a, like, geek there, mm -hmm. not so much with the Army. Um, usually they have these tactical formations like two-ship, four-ship, eight-ship. You usually fly, fight alone or in groups? We fly, in the current threat, we fly in a, a flight of two. Two. And uh, wingman is the person up front, and then the second aircraft is covering the lead ship. Mm-hmm. And two eyes are better than one. Two flights is better than one. Yep. Survivability. One Apache can still pick up the crew from the other Apache. How does that work? Where do you put the crew? Very dangerously. They sit on the outside of the helicopter. Holy shit. Okay. But when when everything is bad and you need to get yeah, somebody yeah. out, that's what you do. You train this? Have you done it? Um, <laughs> we, on the ground, okay. we haven't picked the helicopter up, but this is where you clip in. Okay. This is how you connect. Okay. Um, But that's how the that's how we use the Apache, and it um, it takes us a lot of firepower, and and you can maneuver it easily because you're only worrying about one other helicopter. Yeah, um, Blackhawks and Chinooks will still go out in flights of two, four, six, for instance, based on the amount of people that they need to put at these locations. Sure, it's a different it's purpose, a also. different purpose. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that is based on the recent the recent threats. Mm -hmm. So. With the, and you were talking about the, the mission, we are currently working on developing new tactics, and it's really fun for myself to know 
some of the older pilots and some of the retired guys yeah. because I tell them what we're doing. They're like, that's what we used to do. <laughs> yeah. So we are learning, changing what we're doing, and then we're relearning yeah. uh, to improve ourselves as pilots. So yeah. we're getting back to the mentality that two helicopters is maneuverable, and now we can have the firepower, but we need the firepower that eight helicopters bring, or that 24. Uh, you asked me earlier how, how we are kind of broke up. Um, yeah, the structure of units. The structure of units. Yeah. So the Army has us set up across the board. We have a battalion and a squadron is the same size unit mm -hmm. where we have 24 helicopters within that battalion or squadron. So it's a synonyms, two different words for the same thing. Exactly. Okay. The company and troop is led by a captain and they have eight helicopters and then each one will have two platoons mm -hmm. and the, each platoon has four helicopters. So the hierarchy is battalion, troop, troop or, and or then company and okay. then, and yeah. then platoon. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So platoon, company, battalion or platoon, troop, troop. squadron. Squadron. Okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then they both fall under a brigade. Mm -hmm. And a brigade is led by a, a full bird colonel. Yep. Squadron, battalion is led by a lieutenant colonel. And then you have the companies underneath. And I think at brigade level... I might be completely off, but I think there you have different... You, you wouldn't just have helicopters. Or is, is all of that... Is, is the complete hierarchy you talked about only helicopters? Or is there mixed battalions or mixed brigades? So, and this is big army. For how we are structured right now, it's called a CAB, mm -hmm. the Combat Aviation Brigade. Okay. Um, each Combat Aviation Brigade is supposed to have purpose-built battalions or a squadron. So they will have... A battalion of Apaches, a squadron of Apaches, an assault battalion, and then a mixed battalion that, that kind of that has Chinooks and different types of Blackhawks for the different missions. Right. And then all of those units, they all have a motor pool. They all yeah. they still have cooks. Yeah. They have uh, medical personnel yeah. to, to support those operations. So here in Illesheim, you have Apaches and Blackhawks. Apaches and Blackhawks. So is that yeah. one brigade then, or how? What? How is this um, here? So we, we rotated in, in the theater with under 4th Cab and by theater, uh, the European yeah. theater of operations. And we are primarily based in Germany. Yeah. And then we are flying into Eastern Europe and Southern Europe. And I would like to go to Spain, but <laughs> I'd, I'm not senior enough to, to go to Spain. Um, and we're, we're conducting missions with NATO allies, with the Germans, with... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Italians, and to increase our understanding with NATO. Um, what normally happens is to do another operation, we'll break into what's called a task force. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a Normandy, I think, was the name of the, that task force that began the first Gulf War. Task force Normandy was the Apaches that went yes. first to um, uh, shoot uh, the radar these sites. radars. Yes, yes, exactly. And yeah. how we normally structure now We'll take one company of Apaches, one company of Blackhawks, a couple Chinooks, and a couple medevac aircraft, and then they'll still go under the command of an O5, of a lieutenant colonel. Mm -hmm. And then they'll be task force. Whatever the colonel was, like we are, uh, we're Sabres is what we call our squadron. So we'd then be designated Task Force Saber. Okay. Mm -hmm. And and uh, I worked with our battalion designation 3-4. They're a G-SAB. 
And when I was working with my Apaches under 3-4, we were Task Force Comanche because they're the mm -hmm. Comanche Battalion. Yeah, okay. So that's how, that's kind of how that breaks up. Because when you're operating in, in a theater, you don't need 24 helicopters at a location. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you might need eight and you need a little bit of this. And so you form up the task force that you mm -hmm. need for that mission. And then once that mission is done, yeah. you break back up. So back in the day, uh, there were the Kiowas uh, scouts, right? Yes. Looking around, reconnaissance, understanding the, the picture and telling you guys where to go. Uh, you don't have them anymore. I no. guess for the usual monetary reasons. Um, so who, who does the scouting? Well, um, the scout mission isn't gone. We have integrated UAVs oh, yeah. into the army. There's mm -hmm. a Gray Eagle and a Shadow. They're two different UAVs, but they provide the, the forward-looking capability that okay. the Kiowa used to do. Mm -hmm. um, with a UAV, you don't have the pilot in the aircraft. Yep. So you lose that hands-on capability yeah but it still has that that forward look yeah okay mm -hmm. interesting so it's not like the apaches play that role and we are working with that the army designation for an attack battalion is actually an arb and an ars mm -hmm. attack reconnaissance yeah. okay. battalion attack reconnaissance squadron so we are working in the reconnaissance role as well okay How about collaboration with other flying units, let's say the Air Force? Um, are there like mixed Air Force Army uh, missions? There are. They're called a JAT, a Joint Air Attack Team. Okay. And that is, we're, we wouldn't be flying formation. With, no, no, yeah, of course. <laughs> but that, <laughs> it, it would look really cool, though. Yeah, indeed. And the first thing we always do is you always have to look cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, we, we would use some munitions carried by the Apache, then the munitions carried by an F-15 or 16. Yeah. And then we'd also have maybe artillery integrated in there as right. well. Yeah. And you would divvy out all these targets amongst all the platforms to have a coordinated attack. Mm -hmm. And that's that joint air attack team is kind of a term that is a combined arms maneuver because you're taking everything to reach the end state of the ground force commander. Yeah. yeah. But that sounds rather rare. I mean, it's not something you do every day. I would say that's about a 20%. Okay. Mm -hmm. And because, and it, one of the, the things is, uh, in anybody's field, medical, being a firefighter, a police officer, whatever yep. you're doing, you need to know the language that everybody speaks. Right. And so if we only work by ourselves, we yeah. won't be able to communicate with everybody else. Yeah. So when we are operating in uh, an operational environment and we come on station, we need to be able to speak the language that everybody else that's operating in yeah. the same area speaks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was just a quick anecdote when I was listening to this tanker book. Uh, so they were talking about where to put these refueling tracks. Mm-hmm. Above, in this case, I think it was Iraq or Afghanistan. I don't remember. Um, and at some point, they the tankers were targeted. Mm. And so, yeah. you know, big drama. And in the evening, they uh, talked about it and uh, talked to the, the guys. Going, no, 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 there is no enemy forces. So it must have been blue force, right? So somebody from us, from the U.S. forces, must have targeted them. Anyway, long story short, turns out that some of the artillery the army is firing goes higher than even the U-2 on its way to the target. Oh, and yeah. nobody yes, in the Air Force had 
any idea. So they were like thinking above whatever, a few thousand meters, it's our airspace. And it wasn't. So it, it shows that it's really important to talk to the other branches because you, they, might, they might surprise you in what they do. Yeah, one of the... <laughs> When I was learn, learning to be a pilot, there was we we got excited. We went to a, a class that was, was teaching us about artillery. Yeah. And artillery fires from one point, and we would fly underneath those gun target lines. Yeah. And so we were learning, and then there was a, a class I distinctly recall, naval gunfire. Uh-huh. I got so excited. All I could think of was the American battleships lined up shooting all these huge bullets into the area and... The instructor said, first off, you will never use this. It's like, <laughs> it took all the wind out of my sails immediately. Yeah. And then he said, and second, they shoot very, very, very low. Because mm-hmm. when you, if you ever see the USS Virginia or the Wisconsin, when it yeah. fires, the barrels are very low. Yeah. So they only go a couple thousand feet above the ground, mm-hmm. but they go 25 miles or would that be 40 kilometers yeah. inland. Yeah. And they said, the potential that would actually hit you mm-hmm. is there as well. Yeah. So stay away. Stay away from the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in terms of, if you will, competition between forces, the ground support role, I mean, supporting cr- troops on the ground is obviously one of your tasks, missions. It is. We'll get yeah. back to that in, in another moment. Um, but the Air Force does that too uh, with A-10s um, and rumorably at some point perhaps with F-35. I don't believe it. I think the A-10s will fly until 2100. But um, how would you uh, distinguish these two different um, capabilities, A-10 versus Apache? The A-10 is the only purpose-built airplane that is for CAS, close yeah, air support. Yeah. Has a bigger gun than you have. <laughs> or maybe we shouldn't make all these comparisons. <laughs> uh, they both 30, uh, fire yeah. 30 millimeter. Yes. Um, and, okay, their, their gun is way cooler than ours. <laughs> yes, sir, sir. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but okay. their, their aircraft, that's an anti-tank platform. Yeah. And uh, when it comes to the mission set, the A-10 and the Apache are the most similar yeah, in mission exactly. sets. Um, the only real difference... The A-10 can fly farther to get there. To get there, yeah. And the Apache can land without an airfield. Mm-hmm. So, but the the end state for the two airframes is yeah. almost the exact same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Army controls their fires from aircraft differently. So the Air Force, Marines, and Navy must use a controller, but for the Apache. We can be talking to a private with a radio that's ah. like, I am here. So the others have a designated coordinator slash role, and you can talk to everybody. Correct. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was always very foolish until I put myself into their shoes. And I had a, uh, A-10 pilot sit down. And he said, we go so fast, even in the A-10, yeah. that it can be very hard to see the target on the ground mm-hmm. that you're looking for. So you need somebody to find it and help you get your targeting down. Yep, yep, yep. Um, one of the missions I was on in Iraq, I would actually designate with the Apache for the jets that were up in the air to show them where the target right. was. Mm-hmm. But I was able to be, I was able to be on station and very, because we go so slow, yeah. very thoroughly and systematically scan the battlefield because we're as 
slowly putting around. Yeah. So in some sense, you are even closer to the ground crew just because you're slower and, and lower. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, do you desig- do, you don't have a laser designating unit, right? Do you, we do. Do you do? Do you? Okay, you can designate your own Hellfire. Yes. But do you designate for Air Force as well? We can. You do. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or we can hand over the target as well, where we can designate the point. They can capture it, and then they can uh, lock on with their own system right. and self designate. And self designate. Yeah. So you would use the designation more as a look over here yes. kind of thing, and not so much as a actual targeting point for the weapon. So is there something similar to the Air Force to the uh, Air Force's AWACS like the the big picture provider which then coordinates everybody and not on not the so army much. side okay. no mm-hmm. um there the Apache has the ability to receive targets from other platforms mm-hmm. but what happens since we operate we operate in a very small picture on a battlefield and it's uh we're used in a Big picture operations, but what we can see is a, a small sliver because we are we are going to this location to find these targets, yeah. and so and we can only carry sixteen Hellfires. Yeah. The Air Force, a lot of times, they will operate with a, in a massive area, and yeah. they have systems that can pick up a huge array of targets, and so when they send those out, they need to send us just that small sliver that we need to see, mm. so that we can doesn't we can self designate or look and find that target. From the Air Force. So the, the AWACS, for example, or maybe even the Joint Stars, might say, here, here is an area where we've identified uh, enemy weaponry, very generally. Yes. And so why don't you go there and, and check it out? Exactly. Yeah. And then they would send us that, those specific targets yeah. so that we're not uh, receiving. Because again, the Apache, who's developed in the 70s, flew, first flew in the 80s. Yeah. So if they send us 5,000 targets... That it might shut our system down. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, since I just reminded myself about Joint Stars, uh, that is something like the AWACS, but for ground targets, right? Correct. Fundamentally. It is. So it, that is something you might work with. It is. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Okay. One last thing. Um, another thing I reminded myself of. <laughs> I think the reason um, for uh, the fact that Apaches were used in the first Gulf War in Operation Normandy to disable the strategically placed uh, radars uh, was it might have been because the army wanted to play a role, but it might also have been because uh, uh, damage assessment is is easier from a helicopter because you can you, you see you're not flown over with 300 kilometers by the time your weapons hit, right? So is, is that another reason or another difference that you kind of can more closely observe what's actually what you're destroying? Absolutely, and um, just a, this is a comparison. Yeah, on that first engagement when they. The Apache hadn't been known before. It wasn't used. So that was the first time that it was used. Yes. And it it was a very successful mission and yeah. made famous. But the enemy had no idea what to even what to look for yeah. because it hadn't been used in that role. Right. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. But generally, we can see exactly where our munitions are impacting yeah. 99% of the time. Yeah. It's even rare that we wouldn't be on station to see the munition effect. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the missions. So historically, and the reason why you are here, like why this, I think, location, Illesheim and Ansbach, uh, exist, is because of um, basically, you know, the, the Fulda gap. You know, have huge mm-hmm. columns of tanks coming in from the Soviet Union through the German Democratic Republic at the time, and so you had probably also then many, many different hel- or a group of many helicopters to try to defend against these tanks, right? So that was Correct. a classical case. 
And the, again, the, the philosophy, the idea, um, Russia's mentality was to overwhelm yeah. other forces because they were very successful at the Battle of Kursk with massive, massive tank formations. So the Russians have invested heavily in, in large armor and their armor maneuver warfare. Um, the United States, on the almost exact opposite end, has invested heavily in all air assets from yeah. from the helicopter up to the U-2, for instance, is for the altitude consideration. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. um, and so during the 60s, when the Cobra first flew, it was a purpose-built helicopter. It was very effective. And the Army knew that they needed to have an advanced attack helicopter. And so there was a research program done that was the advanced attack helicopter research program. Yeah. And there was a couple of competitors, but the Apache was the one that was selected. Yeah. And the consideration was that it had a large airframe. We're, we're about twice the size of the Army's Cobras, um, the old Cobra. Yeah, yeah, the, we the can, single engine Cobra. A single engine Cobra. Yeah. The missile went from the tow missile to the Hellfire, which didn't have a, a wire behind it yeah. and was laser designated, and it could defeat armor. So the, the now the concept is one attack helicopter can carry sixteen Hellfires and maneuver up by flying over the terrain. Doesn't need a road to get to a point to attack a column of tanks, and so the cat and mouse thing started where Russia invested into their anti-air yeah, yeah. and how they're going to be set up. But uh, that was uh, the main mindset be behind the Apache. The A-10 was developed around the gun. Yep. The Apache is developed primarily to shoot the Hellfire. Okay. Mm -hmm. So is this mission still something you guys regularly train for? I would say the, the phrase of it's our bread and butter It is. That is that is what we primarily do. Okay. So, and but of course there must be other scenarios. I mean, it's not absolutely. So it's not just the Fulda Gap Soviet Union Russia threat, but you might have tanks in other places around the world. Right. And yeah. I mentioned earlier that I've right in the middle, and I've talked to the old guys, and the stuff that we train now. When I talk to the old guys, they would, some of them ask, "Why? Why would you do that?" Yeah. And then. I also say, well, we're also doing this. And so we're, we're trying to, to learn as much as we can to employ the, employ the aircraft because in the current uh, th threat, we call it a wide area security mission, we go out and we cover dismounted soldiers in buildings and yeah. vehicles all over a desert environment, mountain environment, which is completely different than how the Apache was intended to exactly. be Exactly, yeah. So it's, but it's still has uh, amazing optics on it and the weapon system the gun especially is extremely accurate and yeah. it's a versatile tool when yeah. when you're using it for warfare yeah so um when you train for that um you go i guess to the usual places around here grafenbühl or what's the one in bavaria the other one Hohenfelds? Exactly, yes. I should know the names because we always have to fly around them with our gliders. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's where you would primarily train. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you, we, the scenarios are built there for the, the training objective. This time that when we go, we're going to be fighting armor. 
this time when we go, we're going to fight in an insurgency, right. and we're working with the dismounted infantry. Um, this time, we're doing convoy operations where we're providing security for a convoy, yeah. or and there's medevac coverage and air assault infills, yeah. and there's multiple things that we can do. Right. Let's talk about uh, medevac. Um, I mean, I, I guess you don't necessarily do the evacuation part of it unless no. you have the guy sitting on the on the airframe. No. Um, so I don't know the the word Sandy mission. Whether that's only used by the Air Force for the A10s, or do you use that term too? We don't. You don't. Okay. Uh, ours is medevac. Medevac. Okay. So so what what would then the role be of the Apache if it's not the actual evac? And I, I, I have to correct myself on the medevac. Sometimes you hear dust off. Ah, right, exactly. And yes. dust off is from Vietnam. Mm -hmm. um, so the army has a very strong heritage with the, with the medevac guys, uh, guys and gals, that their pilots will go anywhere without weapons on the aircraft. Mm -hmm. So normally you see Blackhawks or you would see the Hueys with the guns on either side. Yeah. But the medevac pilots, they don't have that. Yeah. So we would fly with the Apache to provide security. Okay into the area that they're flying in. And you don't call a medevac in a combat area because it's a secure spot. There's gunfire, there's people are fighting. And those pilots will take their unarmed aircraft right into harm's way to pick up the ground force when they're hurt, when there's those critical moments to get them out. Uh, and those Blackhawks are much faster than the Apache. Oh, yeah. So a lot of times what happens is we'll be listening for the radio, and when they get called for a medevac, we go fly first, Mm -hmm. and go as fast as we can. And then by the time that the Blackhawks, the medevac pilots get the rest of the information, maybe there's special equipment, maybe they need to take uh, blood. By the time that they catch up to us, we're, we're getting to the area at about the same time. Yeah, yeah. okay. Mm -hmm. So in terms of, we already talked about the fact that uh, the Apache is wired to be able to use the Sidewinder. Uh, and you mentioned that it's not a big deal. You also then, I guess, don't train for it. No. Okay. So air-to-air -air is just not a concern? No. Okay. Um, you also mentioned before that the helicopter is very robust and that you can do much more in terms of, quote, pseudo-aerobatics <laughs> than with a jet ranger. How many Gs can you pull or push? What, what's typical, I guess? I think the book answer is, depending on the airspeed, yeah. I've seen the chart go to four. Okay. I've never seen four Gs. Okay. Um, not in the Delta model. I think I've seen just over two with a very aggressive maneuver. Okay. So what would such an aggressive maneuver look like? I'm trying to picture how... I mean, everybody has seen these videos on the news where an Apache is you know, hovering somewhere and maybe shooting the gun or something. So this is a very stationary, quote, boring from a flying perspective mm -hmm. maneuver. Um, at, at which point do you exploit its agility and how does this look? Um, some of the maneuvers were, were developed in Vietnam. The helicopters were used in a much more maneuver mentality yeah and they would fly those helicopters to fight them the apache was not designed to do that so we had to relearn some of those techniques oh, yeah. mm -hmm. for iraq and afghanistan yep so when that happened you had to learn how to evade ground fire and then also and a lot of people say that you are maneuvering to get away from it sometimes you have to maneuver to get your weapons onto a target of opportunity because They're trying to shoot you, but they're also trying to not get shot. So if you can maneuver your weapons faster and they can get away. Yep. So we have what's called combat maneuvering flight. And 
we can roll the aircraft to 120 degrees. So if you take your hand and roll it. Okay. That would have been my next question. Yeah. And then we can do 60 degrees, nose up and down, which is for FAA, that's considered aerobatic flight. Uh, Yeah. Um, Aerobatic, as far as I remember, is, and I really should know this, (laughs) is uh, over 90 degrees in in roll. Uh, And also, I think in nose up, nose down in pitch, it's either 60 or 45. But yeah, it's aerobatics. And when you think about a helicopter, it's a two-pilot aircraft. So if one guy is yanking and banking the aircraft, can you get the, the, the sight system onto the target that you're looking for? Mm. So there's a consideration of why do it if you can't still fight the aircraft. Yeah. But if you're being shot at or maybe yeah, you need yeah. to suppress, that's where, that's where you have to play that balance between the two. Yeah. Um, but if you roll the aircraft to 120 degrees and then pull the nose around and then you come out of those dives when you're up at 190 knots... You can feel everything sink into your seat. And then sure. another maneuver, uh, say you're, you want to shoot a target on the other side of a hilltop, you can fly at the hilltop and then climb push the aircraft, over. push over, and you can go with a zero yeah. G feeling. And one of the things that I kind of take pride with is <laughs> that I can make my buddy's checklist on the dash in the, his seat <laughs> float. Right. And which is exactly zero G's because otherwise it would go slightly up or slightly down. Right. Yeah. So I, I used to, and I still do this with a friend of mine. Um, I could move his checklist from one side of the dash <laughs> to the other. <laughs> and he would say, come on, man, put it back. I'm like, okay. So then I would <laughs> maneuver the aircraft to put the checklist back on the other spot. Yeah. So, so how much, this is a difficult question because of course you're spending taxpayer money. You're not doing this for fun, but of course flying this thing is fun. If you're not being shot at. (laughs) Absolutely. So how much like time... So so a friend of mine, a glider pilot, another airfield, he was flying the tornado for the German Luftwaffe. And with a buddy of his, he he had a a Pitts Special aerobatic airplane. Mm -hmm. And so when I visited the guy, I saw this picture of a Pitts Special nose down and a tornado behind it. So there must have been some opportunity to have fun to take this tornado to a place where, as it happens, his buddy was with his Pitts. So how much time do you have for you talked about the checklist thing there must have been some leisure i mean how does this work so with how i train guys um you have to be able to recover the aircraft if you get it into a situation that's dangerous yeah so just like learning learning to drive a car the first time you learn to drive a car you're it's kind of scary if, if you don't know exactly what you're doing but then you have guys that are driving formula one race cars yeah. and so how do you get in between so on the training we train the guys to be able to recover the aircraft, to be able to fly the aircraft to those limits. Yeah. And it's a lot of fun getting there. It's, it's okay. a blast. Mm. Um, mm. But you have to. Yeah. Because if the first time that, that happens is in an yeah. emergency, that's not when you want to be learning how to yeah. recover the aircraft, especially if you're at the treetops doing 100 knots, and now you have to almost roll the aircraft. You have to put in a 90-degree bank because you didn't see tracer fire. So yeah. it's one of those things, and he's being instinctual. So what you're saying is that the fun parts are declared as uh, safety training. And I've, I've seen that in civilian aviation as well. It, it can be, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, you want to talk a bit about your own flying missions, training exercises? You can remember interesting stuff. You talked about, I think, being deployed to Iraq. Um, so I went to flight school to start flying in 2008, 
and I do not have civilian okay. flight time. I've I've flown in civilian uh, fixed wing, but nothing of note, and maybe ten minutes on the flight controls. Okay, nothing, yeah. nothing of of influence. Yeah. Um. So from there, I've seen kind of a change, a little bit of a change in the philosophy of of our operations. Um, and it's, it's, it's a, absolutely a pendulum. When I first got here, Germany was my first duty station and our focus here has been working with NATO yeah. and then a deterrence. It's, it's, we have essentially forward staged attack assets. My first deployment, uh, I would consider an op- operational rotation to Kuwait. And again, that was to be a, a forward, forward deployed. <laughs> uh, strategic yeah. reserve yeah. within the Middle East. You, you were deployed from here, or what was the formally? And I mean, where did the helicopters come from? From here. From here. Okay. Yeah. From so here. that's why I said forward, 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 yeah, forward. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I was stationed in Germany, so my wife was here. This is, I still call Germany home. Yeah. Um. So in Kuwait, we went o- over the water. Um. So we we flew Apaches over over the water and worked with the Navy. Um. We worked with the State Department for what can the Apache provide for the evacuation of civilians in these locations, mm-hmm. uh, kind of the armed overwatch, and not the consideration that we're armed, but we can see everything. Yep. So um, you think of the Apache and you think it can shoot. Yep. And a lot of the guys that I worked with, well, we can see. Yeah. And then we have extremely robust communication system. So one of the things that we were prepared for was the evacuation of, of people and that we would provide a communication relay. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then we could see all the people are gone from this area or this yep. is what's happening over here. And that, that was a, a realistic mission. And we worked with the Navy and the Coast Guard uh, for littoral operations, for working for the, the shore piece to uh, help with that. And it was kind of can the Apache do this and how can we integrate in for the understanding of landing on ships with an Apache? Okay. Which did you it, do that? We did. Oh, cool. Um, and it wasn't designed. The Apache was not designed. But to what's do special? That. Actually the airframe. Cause the Navy helicopter. Oh yeah. Shit. The tail wheel, the tail wheel. Cause it's further forward. It's, uh, it's a really long helicopter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Cobra used to be twin blade, and when you think of the fuselage twin oh, blade yeah. on skids, you can put a bunch of Cobras all lined yeah. up. You can't do that with the Apache. Right. You can't fold the blades. Right. Um, right. But the airframe itself, the corrosion consideration, because right. the Army is not supposed to operate over salt water. Right. And so th- those were all things that we were learning and working on. So, so I guess from a, my, my question was more targeted towards from a flying perspective, landing on a ship versus landing on some tough, you know, small spot, not much different right but infrastructure maintenance lo- uh, space it needs right i, I get th- that th- yeah, yeah, yeah that was a big learning thing oh yeah, yeah when when we were learning it was what is he telling us oh he wants us to do this okay so we'll do that and we we had that it was maybe maybe a week mm-hmm. it took us to figure that out but the big piece that we gained was operating these machines in this new environment that none of us had done before yeah and so that that was interesting and the navy doesn't have any attack helicopters the marines have right they the have, marines they have, have the cobras that. have the cobras but yep. the navy doesn't correct yeah um so we got to see that piece we also um the kuwaitis operate 
or fly Apaches as well. Oh, yeah. So on the relationship side, one of our jobs was to teach them how to operate the attack helicopter because yeah. that's a very American military mentality that we have attack helicopters and, and use them and employ them. So we did joint operations with the Kuwaiti military for the defense of Kuwait and for defending the shoreline. And we got to do all those missions. That was the first rotation. The second rotation, I went back to Kuwait. The unit picked up right where we left off after a three-year gap, which is kind of rare to see because we had almost a full changeover in people. But we never lost any of that experience, which Mm -hmm. is really good. So we went right back into what we were doing. And in 2014, ISIS had advanced far enough into Iraq that they actually put attack helicopters in Baghdad. Okay. So with the strategic reserve that we were, we kind of put our money where our mouth was saying that this is what we're doing. And it was, we're going to (laughs) what? So that's why I say that the fastest I've had an Apache is in the back of a C-17. We put them on a C-17. And it's it's a surreal experience when you're sitting in a cargo airplane a c-17 and right at your knees there's an apache chained down yeah and you're flying into a combat theater that you didn't think you were going to be going into yeah so how many can you get into one c-17 it depends but normally two two yeah Mm -hmm. so we unloaded unloaded the helicopters and we didn't have a completely blank war room because the state department was still there the embassy was still there but that was what our job was was to secure the embassy Mm -hmm. so now we had all the guys that were in iraq in 2011 and later but we were essentially the first ones doing what we were doing there so we had a complete change to what we're all of our guys and all our experience had done before we weren't evacuating anybody out yet yeah we were there as a deterrent we wanted to make sure that everybody could hear the Apaches flying <laughs> yeah. and that they, they knew because it's one of those things. So yeah, yeah. Noise doesn't hurt anybody, yeah, yeah. but you know what's behind the noise. Yeah. So uh, we had no communication with the Iraqi forces on the ground. There was no American forces going out to do anything. We were there purely as that immediate reaction to evacuate the embassies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has since changed. I, I honestly don't know what the footprint in Iraq looks like now for yeah. the Apaches. Um, after that, we got home, or home to Germany, and I was transferred to Fort Carson, which sits at uh, would be between 17 and 2,000 meters. Mm-hmm. And so we, we immediately started doing mountain training. For me, it was my first time, but they had been doing mountain training all along. Yeah. Um, Learn how to fly in the mountains, which is almost identical to how you fly in Afghanistan. Because, oh, in terms of density altitude. Density altitude. There it's heat, in the mountain it's altitude, actually. And there's also 3,000 or 2,000 meter yeah. airfields there as well. Yeah. Um, so I went to Afghanistan for my first Afghanistan rotation, and... That was completely different than Iraq, which was completely different than Kuwait, which is completely different than Germany. For the mentality, what was required there, yeah. I was supporting coalition forces, so uh, Polish and U.S. forces on the ground uh, within the theater there. And it was 
biggest thing that I've learned throughout my aviation career is that always prepare to learn something new. Okay. Everything that we did, it was it was different than what we did the last time. Can you give like one example? Uh, very, very specifically was we changed how we were doing our medevac coverage. Uh-huh. Um, there's different techniques of how you fly with the with aircraft and how they're going to land. I was never trained in medevac escort. And those are things that I never thought were a consideration. Because even when you escort a Blackhawk in that's on an aerosol infield, they, they can provide their own security for close in. Yeah. Medevac, they can't. So they still don't have any guns. No. Is that, I always wondered, is that because uh, there's no weight slash space available? Or is this because as a medical uh, thing, it doesn't matter if it's a truck or a helicopter, you just aren't armed in the hope that you don't get shot at because everybody sees the cross? And that's a consideration. Going all the way back to World War II, if there was a, a medical indication, it'd be a crescent moon or the yeah. Red Cross, that, that is a non-combatant medical vehicle and they don't get shot at. Okay. Um, that's also the combatant medics when they wear the Red yeah. Cross, they're not armed. Yeah. On the battlefield now, they're armed. They no longer carry the Red Cross because they became targeted with the modern threats. Yeah. But the medevac guys, the dust off the army medical helicopters still put the red cross on the side they're still a medical escort okay and they're still unarmed okay uh, a couple of the other branches they've removed the red cross and they've armed the medical support helicopters because they were they were getting shot down and mm-hmm. the, the the germans the germans and the the brits they almost have a flying hospital it's a surgical team that yeah. they, they can bring in and they do not have the medical designation on the side of the majority of their aircraft I've only seen it done once, and they could roll it up, <laughs> mm-hmm. and they, they could remove it. And I, yeah. think, I think it was because it was removable, and they could move the equipment from aircraft to aircraft. Right, containerized, I guess. Containerized, was a, a yeah. trans probably, or a C-130 in case of the Brits, I think. Mm, okay, that's sad in some sense. That uh, It is. In some sense. I mean, it's always I, – I know I'll get feedback from some of my listeners um, <laughs> about this like when you say that there are some rules and uh, even in warfare and, and mm. some, I don't want to use the, rule, the word culture, but that, that you don't shoot at Medevac, for example. And it's, it's sad that even those very basic agreements seem to be up for grabs. And good. I think on the, the Western mentality and also with on the almost the gentleman's warfare that came out of the, yeah, yeah. the Geneva yep. Conventions, yep. Um, once somebody was ruled out, that's you don't want to have further casualties later on. Yep. But when you think about total war and, and those, those considerations, uh, the medical piece, with as terrible as it sounds, that's a huge morale piece. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that is why they've been targeted because if you bring in a medical helicopter that's going to carry people away, yep. they, they have a mentality that, that they're safe. Yep. And if you remove that safety... Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. Um, when we chatted about this uh, interview before, uh, you mentioned that you would be going to to the Baltics for an exercise. I guess you probably you won't go now, no, because you are going to this other place. I'm not sure you mentioned with the microphone on, so I probably shouldn't. Um, so, what would that have been? This exercise in the Baltics. Um, it's been very publicly known that the U.S. has has been working in the Baltics and in Poland, and to gain 
an operational understanding of how their militaries work. Right. And then for them to train with us so that they learn how, how we operate. And it, it's really funny. Uh, I've heard before that nobody wants to work with the U.S. because we don't follow our own doctrine. Okay. What, <laughs> what does that mean? Um, we don't follow our own rules. Okay. So we, we, we do what works at that time. But at the same time, we do have extensive doctrine that we are focusing on working with those militaries so that they can see how we do maintenance. Yep. They can see how the fueling capability that we drive a truck and set it up. Uh, for smaller militaries, that's a they don't ha they don't need that capability. Mm -hmm. Like in Kuwait, when I worked with the Kuwaitis, that's not even a concept. Yeah, well, probably the, you can take you ten minutes to reach the other end of the country. Exactly. Yeah. And so we're we're showing them how to do FARP operations of the forward air refueling point. point. Yeah. And we're showing them how to do field maintenance because again the Germans uh they fix their helicopters in a state of the art hangar. We leave ours out in the mud. <laughs> and so and on the on the same token, they're showing us of one of the big things that we learn I learned from the Germans and that our maintenance guys have having those facilities set up your maintenance turnaround time is a lot faster. Mm. So we are learning things from each other, and that's a big piece. Another one is shooting. Um, they don't get to talk with the, the Apache unless we bring it to them and so that they can talk to the air crews while they're shooting. It's one thing to sit down in a room like this and, and talk about this is what it's like when the Apache shoots. This is what it sounds like. It's another thing yeah, to have. Yeah, to experience it. You can hear the rotor system. When the gun shoots, there's a concussion in your chest that you can feel it. You can see the on the soft skin, like a Humvee or uh, I can't think the but the Defender, like the the Brits use. Yeah. You can see the windows move, mm -hmm. well, and w when the rockets fire, it is deafening. Mm -hmm. And then also to see how accurate it can be. Yeah. So for them to see it and have hands on. That's a, a huge opportunity because if we fight, that's what they're going to see. How close to ground crew would you fire your gun? I, th I think 300 meters okay. uh, away. And I have fired directly over friendly forces. Just make sure that they're inside the vehicle. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've never had a consideration of altitude. The big one I have fired at, on an American range where there were civilian cars and the casings from the bullets <laughs> destroy, down. destroy their windshields oh, shit. <laughs> so and that's why we don't, we don't really think about that side of it yeah um we have worked with commanders that they want their soldiers to experience the helicopter firing directly over them and now that i know that the casing will break a windshield yeah we want them inside of an armored vehicle okay i see yeah. or we'll offset yeah but then even still when you Put the rockets overhead, it's deafening. Yeah. yeah. So, but these exercises then, they're also about learning in terms of maintenance, in terms of culture, in terms of tactics, not just, if you will, uh, fight together, you it's, know, make sure you all have the same radio frequency band so we can actually yeah. talk, um, but also this more uh, softer stuff, if you will, in some sense. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Mm. I think it's very realistic. Uh, we were talking earlier the difference of, of how Germans vacation compared to how Americans vacation. Yeah. And a lot of our young guys, you take a 18 or 20-year-old, very energetic, 
full of testosterone guy. You give him a rifle, and this is the way that you fight. This is how we do everything. But then you show them that this is how the Germans fight. It's different, and yeah. it, it, it does achieve the same outcome. Yeah. So if you know these right. different ways to do things, you are a much better everything, a person. Yeah. You're, you're more rounded. Yeah. So what's the future of the Apache? Uh, there's the E-model coming up, which E-model. probably has, as always, stronger, uh, stronger engines, uh, I guess. Um, um, what stronger else? drivetrain, I stronger would say. Drivetrain. Okay. Stronger drivetrain. So you can, you can, you can uh, use the power of the engines yes. more effectively on the rotors. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Army has been re- researching the future of vertical lift. There's been a, a concept that's been used extensively um we're trying to figure out what's next yeah the rh rah 66 comanche at some point i don't know if it's still something that's that's been completely scrapped okay all right but the technology that went into that so um the technology that developed the comanche went into our aircraft and so we got a lot of a lot of upgrades from that system Mm -hmm. but most uh, avionics then i guess avionics um but sikorsky and bell and, and Sikorsky is working with Boeing, but they have the X2 and a S92 Raider, yeah, and then the V280, I believe it's yes. called the Valor. Yep. Um, so the Valor is a tilt rotor thing. Tilt rotor? It's more or less the successor to the V22, or yep. successor. I'm not actually sure, but something like that. And the Raider is is that a is that what's its role? It's a coaxial system with a pusher prop. Right. It's so it's faster, I guess. Faster. Yeah. Um, They're looking at, at systems that can do, and I've seen these articles written in multiple formats. I've seen 350 knots and then 350 kilometers. Uh, yeah. So I think, they're, hmm. I think they are looking for the 300-knot okay. range. And again, this is just thinking, yeah. but um, the Echo model can do 145 knots. Mm-hmm. And so that is approaching 350 kilometers yeah. so why develop something that only has that small improvement yeah so yeah, okay i think that they're working okay. to, to get up to that next level and the osprey is incredibly fast when it's in forward flight yeah and it can still hover yeah but um, it couldn't play the role that the apache is playing it's not it's no. not agile it's not yeah no and i think that's where that yeah. s92 raider right with yeah. a pusher prop yeah. i think that's where that role yeah. and i think we're going to kind of have to sit back and wait but until those come out the Echo model is our the way forward. Is the way forward. And so, in addition to the drivetrain, uh, uh, stronger drivetrain, what else are the difference to the point you can publicly talk about it? They changed um, some of the radios. They made multiband, right. and it sounds like it's a really small thing. Uh, like, oh, we changed the radios. <laughs> no, we have added the capability that we can talk on the same radio style with multiple radios. Mm-hmm. So instead of talking with just our wingman and one ground force, we can talk to ah. three different... And it's, it's a, a pretty big uh, capability. Yeah. The blades were redesigned and... That's because if you go faster, they shouldn't go supersonic. Correct. So that's... And inversely, it can go faster, but depending on the, on the configuration, it can fly for longer. Right, yeah, yeah. So it still has the same internal fuel system, but they've now added another external fuel tank oh okay you can do that so mm-hmm. the israeli apaches have external fuel tanks but the our delta model got away from that because ours were not crash worthy 
Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. the Echo model has a new generation of external tank that's now crashworthy mm-hmm. and bal- and ballistic. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. instead of having a giant exposed fuel cell next to you, <laughs> it's yeah. it's very capable. Yeah. How much more fuel does that add? Hour to hour and a half. Okay. Mm-hmm. So which to us is it's that much more time that you're away from the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> I can give you tips. <laughs> um, it's IFR rated. So oh, yeah, I can, right, I can fly that. clouds, which when I was a young guy, that was one of those like, so what? And yeah. now uh, I am rated in the Echo model, kind of seen that side by side. It's a big deal. They can self-deploy and go through bad weather. Yeah. Uh, when in the Delta model, we couldn't do that. Yeah. Um, they are working with the the gun, so the manufacturing process when it comes to warfare, the ability to produce, field, and sustain is a huge piece. Yeah. And the Echo model for longevity is on some of the components is proven to be more robust. Mm-hmm. And there are with anything that happens when you have your first generation aircraft. They are not first generation, but when you when you redesign something, you have to figure out a couple of small things that need to be fixed. And we are finding the the changes in manufacturing that come that come along with it. Mm-hmm. So, but it, it's proving to be that it's an easier aircraft to sustain. Okay. For longevity, more maintainable, more maintainable yeah. than the Delta was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. A lot of guys are complaining about it at the same time because they're having to relearn yeah. things. Oops. But yeah. well, it's proving that it will be easier to maintain. Yeah. And the longbow radar is still an optional component, I guess, then? It is. It, that, that is a carryover. Um, yeah. And I keep on hearing rumors that... Uh, rumors actually give you some of the best information. But <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, the, it'll be integrated, or it'll be updated and changed given greater range and mm-hmm. that there are potential for new munitions to come out to extend the the, the range and those those programs are all being being worked on. Okay. Mm. And it's like with everything, everything is always trying to be updated and improved from where yeah. it's at. Yeah. It's like when Apple publishes or, or releases a new phone, they always say this as if it's a complete surprise to say this is the best iPhone ever. Yeah, of course it's the newest one. I mean, right. obviously. And so it's like that as well. You try to improve in all categories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, do you see some of your um, tasks being replaced by drones. I mean, I could imagine this. One thing is this, this uh, you know, seeing part. I'm sure drones can do some of that. They can. So is, is there some competition coming up there? I don't necessarily see competition. Okay. Because there's two sides of it. I think we will see maybe after our lifetime. But I think that we still understand that in order to have conflict we must put people in that conflict otherwise it's not a conflict because it's not a conflict and is it worthwhile mm-hmm. so we must have people in harm's way there must be a cost to what we're doing at the same time if i am there with the ground force i can see exactly what they can see And I can feel what they can feel. Right. If I'm in a box yeah, yeah. somewhere else, you're disconnected. Yeah. So I I think that for our generation, we will maintain that connection to the conflict. Mm. Yeah. Also, I think uh, the the way drones are used today is for uh, long loitering, big picture kind of tasks where quick reaction and tight integration with humans on the ground or maybe in other airplanes isn't a factor 
right? So that's the right. classical, what we always see since a few years, uh, drones spy on people and shoot a hellfire. But it's also the Navy's working on um, uh, uh, air refueling drones. Right. It's another one of these more or less stationary, you know, you go around in circles and wait until the F-18s come up with a limited fuel. Um, and the Apache is different, right? It's much more down there, more maneuverable, closer to people. I don't see how that how that happens and remotely. I think to I mean could you have a summer like I like to think of the next the next conflict when I sit in daydream and I think of it like what is going to happen next I see the Apache potentially operating kind of like a submarine okay where the crew we have two two pilots or four pilots with two aircraft and we can operate no matter what as long as we have fuel and we have our munitions, just like a submarine. Yep. They're the fuel and their munitions. They don't need to have continuous communication with everybody. And they can turn left and right and submerge and yep. do whatever they have to do without having a data link to something else. Right. And I think yep. having the human interface is what we have to have. Mm-hmm. And if you operate in a denied environment where you can no longer have that data link... Yep. I don't think those drones will work. Right. True. What's with the cowboy hat? We're cowboys. We do things fast. I thought you're Indians, according to the <laughs> names of all the... Of so, the <laughs> this goes back to the Civil War with the uh, cavalry from the Civil War. And they would wear a cowboy hat because it's, actually this is a functional hat. Yeah. So during <laughs> yeah. Vietnam, when they were redesignated as cavalry units that they would ride their iron horse in the battle, they would they started wearing Stetsons mm-hmm. to go to ride around and designate them as, as cavalry soldiers. So now we have continued that heritage and we wear our cowboy hats. And we're not supposed to, but it's a lot of fun. I was going to ask you, is this like, I mean, uh, military has dress codes and stuff. Is that allowed officially or tolerated? Tolerated. Tolerated. Yep. Okay. But when whenever anything official's going on, you you can't do this. Like when the big boss shows up here. No. Um, for the official capacity, we we wear it for formal events with our, our dress uniform. Oh, you do. Mm-hmm. We do. Um, so then, it has some notion of being kind of pseudo official. Right. Yeah. And then I call it funny hat day. Uh, that's Fridays. Fridays. <laughs> okay. uh, everybody in the squadron wears their stetsons. Okay. And we wear them to the DFAC and around around the area. So DFAC, the dining facility. Ah, DFAC. Okay. All right. So that was kind of my uh, light-hearted closing question. Anything else um, that I forgot to ask that you think might be worth adding? You you did mention that the Apache uh, were supposed to be Indians. Um, yeah. It it's a sign of respect to the American Indians and how tough of fighters that they were. Mm-hmm. The American helicopters, everybody knows it's a Huey, but it's actually the Iroquois. Yeah. And so the Comanche, Blackhawk, Chinook, Apache, the Cheyenne, Comanche, if it Comanche, were to exist, yeah. are all American tribes, yeah. American Indian tribes. And the Apache was one of the best fighters. And, uh, the army has gone back and asked them multiple times because right now we're in a society that um, we want to make sure everybody's okay with what we call things. And they are very honored mm-hmm. that we named the Apache after the Indians. And so, uh, and then there's the 
Tomahawk cruise missile. Oh, right, yeah. The yeah. longbow is after the Indians' longbow. It's ah, not. Right, right, it right. does not go to the British or the medieval yeah. weapon. Yeah. Um, and so they they try to do that as much as they can to pay have a kind of a historical lineage with the Indians. Right. There is also a web server called Apache, and its name comes from a wordplay. Um, um, it comes from the word patch, like you patch something together. Mm -hmm. So it's, it was a patchy server because initially it was hacked together from all kinds of crap. And so they, at some point, reworded that to Apache, as in the Indian. So it's I know... That <laughs> funny that you say patched when I was flying somewhere else and they <laughs> couldn't say, the ATC controller couldn't say Apache. Yeah. It was a patch. Right, yeah. And so he said, there's a patch flying over there. Yeah. And the... The accent was much thicker. Yeah. And the Blackhawks that were flying over the frequency with us are like, are they talking about you? <laughs> I have no idea. Do you, so like a patch? It's like a patch of, like a field patch? Yeah, yeah. Is that what they're talking about? Yeah. And the tower got angry. They're like, the the patch, he's lining out. Do you see the patch? It's like, <laughs> oh, the Apache. <laughs> they don't have ease at the end of any of their words. So it was, yeah. it was, it was, it was fun. Well, and to be fair... Um, there are plenty of uh, English words where the E at the end isn't pronounced. So it's not totally obvious that you pronounce right. it Apache. I, when yeah. I was a like, little child, I didn't know. When I first started helicopter, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. All right. So I think uh, we've reached uh, the end. Thank, Thank you very you much for very, your time. Well, I was say, <laughs> say exactly <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, you took the time. I was, I'm always doing these kinds of things because they're interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Cool. So that's it. I After uh, we had finished, actually on the way home, I noticed that we actually didn't do a detailed cockpit tour. Completely forgot about that. But uh, I think we talked about it enough so you get an impression. So, Caleb, once again, thank you very much. I'm not sure if you're going to hear this where you are now. Anyway, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time just before you would be leaving I'm sure you would have had other stuff to do as well. So thank you very much. Also, thank you very much to John for putting me in touch and also for kind of listening to the episode before we published to make sure we didn't, you know, mention something we shouldn't. Um, this whole recording was, by the way, really funny because I arrived in uh, the area, Illisheim, uh, the evening before we recall it. I was like staying overnight and... I was trying to find something to eat, like, you know, a bakery to, to grab something. I couldn't. There was no open bakery at 5, 6 in the evening. I, I could find one single restaurant, which basically was officially open, but there was nobody, not even the, the lady who would typically cook, only her husband who would basically do the waiting. And so he improvised some kind of salad for me. So it was like end of the world experience over there. Very strange. And then another strange thing happened the next morning when I met Caleb. He actually came by bike. Like we, we met at the gate and he, he came as an American by bike on an airfield. I was really confused. It was an e-bike. So when I found that out, it kind of fit better into my uh, worldview. Anyway, this was very funny. So, all right. So thank you guys, of course, as usual for listening. Hope you liked it. Um, you might want to check out iTunes and vote and review. I, I just recently uh, went to iTunes and checked out Omega Town. There were there's lots of comments, but they're all very old. So there's hardly anything recent, which is not so, you know, nice. Why don't you guys just go there and, and, and you know, what do the other podcasts always say? Um, it, 
reviews and ratings help other listeners find the show. I think that's what they say, and I think it's true. So, uh, and that never hurts. More listeners is always better. All right, enough of my ramblings. Enjoy whatever you're doing, um, and uh, talk to you in about two weeks. Ciao. Hello, Markus here for Omega Tau. Omega Tau is an independent and non-commercial podcast produced by Nora Ludwig and me, Markus Fötter. We are on the web at omegataupodcast.net. You can also find us on Facebook, Google+, and Twitter under the handle Omega Tau Podcast. We love to hear from you through a comment on the website, a post via our social network channels, or via an email at feedback at omegataupodcast.net. We also always appreciate recommendations of Omega Tau to your friends directly or through social media. Omega Tau is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivative License 3.0. This means that you can freely share the content, but you cannot use it for commercial purposes and you cannot distribute derivative works. You always have to attribute the source, omegataupodcast.net. Any quotations or citations of our work are perfectly fine, of course. For more details on the license, see creativecommons.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast and talk to you next time. Oh my God, so.